Welcome to Temporary Experts, the show where two professional science communicators investigate relevant science stories from the everyday, research the heck out of it, and discuss their findings with you. Howdy there, folks. She's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong, and together we're your Temporary temporary experts. Experts. This week's topic is New New Year's Year's Resolutions, because it's it's that that time of year. year. (laughs) (laughs) Ha ha, switching it up. But first, (laughs) updates, some updates. We talked a lot about the James Webb, and it's in space now. It is. It has gotten all the way to its operating position at Lagrange Point 2. Uh, I believe the last thing I heard was that all of the mirrors and all the instrumentation have properly unfolded. Uh, and it'll be about another month before we start receiving any data, but it'll be another, what I think you had said. Two, yeah. three, two, three months from the from end of then. this month. Yeah. <laughs> two, three months from then that we'll start getting like good pictures. Cause I kind of got to stitch all the images together and mm-hmm. like really do all of the like optics checks and telescope alignment and all of that fun stuff. What do you think? What do you think the first thing that they're going to, they're going to drop on us is going to be? Like, what's the first picture? Yeah, like... <laughs> Do you want to know my first honest answer that well, came to my yeah, mind? Yeah, what was the first thing that came to your mind? Space. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then we're like, maybe a star. So, so sassy. <laughs> I mean, tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> You're not wrong. Well, no. But what object in space, Sarah? Uh, <laughs> the Hubble. No, we can't point it at I know, Earth. I know, it's The instrument's too sensitive. Um... <laughs> What object in space? I don't even know what way it's pointing. I could, I have no We can point in a concept, lot of different directions. But not at Earth. Uh, I'm going to say something because it's a fun place. Uh, the Crab Nebula. Okay. Mm. No, yeah. I just, I just like nebulas. They're very pretty. Yeah. I have a feeling that it will be, they'll pick something kind of, um, I, I have a feeling that the first image that they'll kind of drop on us may not be a super scientifically significant image, mm-hmm. but it might be just something, yeah, like, here's a nebula you've seen, like, many times before, but now imaged with, like, you know, here's the pillars of creation, but in all infrared with the power of the James Webb. Um, mm-hmm. And then, like, kind of compare, like, here's an image from the Hubble, and here's from the James Webb, and, like, oh, look at all the detail and stuff. That's or true. Or it will be something, like, super scientifically significant, where it's like, we've looked... We've tried to look at the earliest point in the universe, and this is like some of the earliest infrared light. Those are my kind of two two angles that I imagine NASA will take. Scientifically, it makes more sense to go for like the most important stuff first, just in case something goes wrong with the telescope at any yeah. point. You want to be able to like make sure you get all that good data. But space exploration, as we talked about many times, is so expensive that you really do have to get like the public on your side. Yeah. And so giving the public an image that they would get excited about would also make a lot of sense. So yeah. we'll just have to see. I think no matter what we get, it's going to be fantastic. Also because it's going to be kind of this like artistic rendition of like infrared s- um, data, essentially. Right? Because it's not really capturing information in the way that we're used to our eyes capturing light information. So it will be really neat no matter what. I'm very excited. Uh, I'm just glad that I'm, I'm sure there were a lot of sleepless nights for some NASA engineers over the last <laughs> month uh, yes. waiting for it to all unfurl and be ready to go. But it's nice. Yeah. It's up there now. They pushed, they pushed the baby bird out of the nest and now it's in space. Yeah. Ten, 10 years of development, 15 years <laughs> of development, something like that. Yeah. yeah. And now a few more months wait to get some images. And then they'll find out that they left a splotch on the lens or something. That's, <laughs> yeah. I know that's not how it works, but... <laughs> Get a really good picture of a tardigrade. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're everywhere. Cool. Yeah, so um, another space story that we forgot to mention in our last NASA Christmas episodes <laughs> um, <laughs> was that uh, the... I can't, unfortunately, can't remember the name of the mission right now. 
but the mission to touch the sun, the probe that NASA had sent about, I think, two years ago now, um, has officially sort of touched the the corona boundary of the sun, which is quite interesting. Um, so what it's doing now is it's orbit. It's been in orbit of the sun for a while, and what it does is it's on this kind of like sigmoidal orbit, and it's sort of like dive below the corona and then come back out again because like the surface of the sun is not how we kind of imagine it like or like the surface of a planet right it's a big ball of incandescent gas or plasma plasma so it doesn't have like a hard surface so you can kind of go beyond what we call the boundary of the surface of the sun and then come back out again so it'll do this i think um for the next year kind of in and out uh so capturing data each time. like a wave yeah kind okay. of sigmoidal is like um is yeah so you think about uh, have you ever seen the uh, like orbit. sinusoidal maybe that's the like regular wave and because sigmoidal is like the bell curve right oh that's okay. a sigmoidal distribution that's, so i don't know i don't know curves man <laughs> i'm not very good at that function stuff <laughs> but yeah so it's basically just moving in like a big like up and down okay. so it's going in and out of the sun several times kind of deeper each time capturing different information and then eventually they'll just like plummet it right into the sun it's just a. Uh... Inter, no, not interplanetary, uh, cosmic recycling or incineration. Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was called the Parker Solar Probe, says the internet. Oh, okay. I feel like you could have given it, I'm surprised it's not like Project Icarus or something like that, considering that it's flying too close to the sun. But It's true. We'd have to look up who Parker is. Yeah, maybe he, maybe he was the one that like first theorized it or something. I don't know. I do not know. But she or they? We did. That's true. But oh. we did touch the sun, and that's very Woo. cool. Very, very cool. exciting. Touching more and more things in our solar system. <laughs> Just out there touching stuff. Just out there poking, <laughs> poking stuff. It's like the movie, like Stand by Me. It's like when I go see a dead body, I'm like poking it with a stick, or whatever. Ah. That's us. That's human beings exploring the universe. Yeah. Poking stuff with sticks. We're all, or we're yeah. just toddlers. Going, well, through, yeah. going through the universe, the hands first. I mean, that's like not a, I like, I kind of agree with that perspective, like from a certain viewpoint, like we are like, in, we're intellectual toddlers in terms of our knowledge <laughs> of like the work, the inner workings of the universe. That's true. I've been watching a lot of Marvel movies lately. So uh, like, I'm kind of in that, like, it's like, ah, yes, the multiverse and all mm. sorts of crazy stuff. But that's why I brought up Icarus too, because I, uh, I watched Eternals on a, on a plane ride home. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> we're um, just exploring with our hands. Yeah. Uh... Uh, in the last podcast mm-hmm. as well, Davis, you mentioned the Sword of Damocles, and I, I acted like I knew what that was, but I don't. Do you know what that is? Uh, I'm not super well-versed on, like, <laughs> the origin of the Sword of Damocles. It does come, I had to, like, look it up, so, it, like, it does come from this, like, uh, 50 BC story about Dionysus II, some king... Uh, who was like, and so the story kind of goes that he was this like iron-fisted ruler and because he had made many enemies, he was basically afraid of being assassinated all the time. And he had some guy, Damocles, come to his court who was to like entertain him and he like really liked Damocles, but he like, so he had this big feast for Damocles, but the whole time he had a sword, razor sharp sword hanging above Damocles' head by a single horsehair. Um, And so Damocles eventually is just sort of like, Oh, it's really nice to be so privileged to eat with the king, but I'm going to peace because I don't want to be killed by this sword over my head. Yeah, so Damocles is just like, I'm out. Uh, and that's sort of where the saying comes from. Also, I think apparently where the saying kind of like hanging by a thread ah. comes from because it's hanging by a thread and if the thread snaps. So it's just basically a saying to mean like an overall like foreboding sense, the sword of Damocles. So we often use it to say sort of stuff like, oh, that project is hanging over my head like the sword of Damocles because I know I have to do it. 
but I keep distracting myself or something like that. I'm going to start using it. it. It's much more dramatic to say the sword of Damocles is hanging over my head rather than like, I'm hanging by a thread, man. Yeah. And I think even like there's, I think there's like some usage difference in the two, right? Like if you're hanging by a thread, it really gives this impression that like you're about to fall. Like, right. And so everything's built in for you. Whereas like hanging over my head, like the sword of Damocles is more like I have something that is going to come at me like a sword yeah, like versus the external yeah. yeah exactly like the the external versus the internal so it's interesting that that kind of that singular story has maybe birthed kind of like two different sayings i don't know i've often been told that i use like very obscure sayings <laughs> that old boss that used to say this to me all the time <laughs> i don't feel that way i don't feel like i'm using old person sayings but apparently i'm using some weird obscure sayings so i don't know take that as you will I'll keep an ear out for it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it, was there anything else we needed to update? Uh, there was, we were wondering if Dead Hand, uh, the Soviet Union, mm. was it the, was the the bunker, the, uh, no, the... It's a pro, it's like a system. Right. It's system. a weapons system, basically, to launch all of their, in the event of a first strike that eliminated all of Russia's chain of command in one single nuclear strike, it's a, it was a facility and a system that was designed to then launch, like, all of Russia's nukes all at once. Right. In a retaliatory strike. So I was just curious, or we were curious if uh, this was still active in current Russia, and it is. Yeah. So, yay. Yeah, with everything that's going on right now with Fun. Russia and the Ukraine and all the NATO countries, that's, uh, yeah, really brings, really brings some peace of mind there to yes. know that it's still active. Yeah. But on a lighter note, uh, I did, <laughs> so I was going to stop asking about this, actually. Oh, and no. Then... <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I didn't then, even think about this. Yeah, I made it something of a resolution to stop asking you. And then my mom was listening to all our podcasts over Christmas. And she got to the Volcanoes one and she was like, I'm so excited to hear Davis's Volcano song. And I just like bit my, bit my lip and like, didn't say anything, bit my tongue. Well, listen uh, to the next month's worth of episodes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's uh, not a necessity. I will stop asking you about it on the podcast. But, uh... The people want the, the people, volcano song. The people want it. The people it's, want it. Okay, all right. I'll, I'll get on it. I've been away, so I have a built-in excuse this time. Yes. A real excuse, not a made-up excuse. I've been away. <laughs> I haven't, didn't have any of my instruments with me. So I guess I probably had some time that I could have worked. I was also with one of my very musical friends who's a much better songwriter than me. Could have probably tapped her for that. But uh, You yes. just kind of dug yourself a hole there. You had like a perfect out. You're like, I was on vacation. And then you started listing reasons why you well, couldn't Well, <laughs> I couldn't have done it on vacation. We were doing vacation things. Yeah, exactly. But it's just, So you're, you know, you're off the hook for right now. But For right now, yeah. People people are very du- excited. Duly noted. Duly noted. <laughs> I, will, I will get right back on it. Maybe that will be my New Year's resolution. Oh. Who knows? Who knows? To not make promises that I can't keep. Um, <laughs> but yeah. And speaking of the New Year's resolutions. That's right. It takes us to today's topic. It does. Which is New Year's resolutions. Yeah. And you may have noticed that it's, uh, and I mean, especially by the time that this episode <laughs> is edited and comes out, uh, it's a little bit past New Year's. Yeah. We're, we're into like late January. Um, but a lot of people have trouble keeping their resolutions. So we thought that this topic was still relevant because we can kind of talk about resolutions and habits and how they're formed and how they're broken and all of that good stuff and maybe even talk to you a little bit about our own resolutions because mm-hmm. we set some just because of this podcast sure did sarah i'm yep. not gonna be trying to think about it over the next hour while we record that's not me i came prepared i know you're always so prepared davis <laughs> yeah I even, <laughs> I even secretly did write the volcano song i'm just kidding <laughs> i wish um yeah so we're doing this a little late for for two reasons we had to take a little bit of a hiatus because uh, one i was on vacation mm-hmm. and uh we couldn't figure out remote remote recording so if anyone has some tips for that <laughs> 
let me know because my old system didn't work. Yeah, we would love to be able to record remotely. We could yeah. record even more, but we yeah. uh, couldn't, it didn't work. Yeah. And then unfortunately, right before I left, the COVID situation was really bad oh boy. Uh, where we live. Still is really bad, uh, but we've all kind of gotten boosted now. So uh, yeah, so a few weeks late, but uh, it still worked because for all the reasons Sarah said, you know, this is, this is typically the time where people really fall off the wagon, as it were. I'll try, I'll try not to use that phrase too many times in this podcast. Yeah, we'll both use but, it. Uh, I'm very certain we'll both use yeah. it. <laughs> but yeah, so we thought it was a good time to maybe talk a little bit about New Year's resolutions, making habits, things like that. And that way, if you're faltering a little bit on your New Year's resolution, you got an opportunity to like kickstart yourself a little bit here. Yeah, we yeah. Can, we'll help you out, give you a little science boost. Yeah, exactly. Get you through, <laughs> get you over that hump. Yes. All right. So where should we start? I think let's just uh, talk about resolutions as everyone knows them. New Who invented year. the New Year's resolution? I didn't go into history this time, <laughs> I, surprisingly. No, that, that, was, that was a facetious question because I think it's pretty clear that like, I don't think there's ever, there's probably never an inventor, right? And if you look at like yeah. other cultures, like their, their kind of New Year's, their New Year's um, ceremonies or whatever, like uh, festivals will often involve some level of either sort of kind of getting rid of the past like kind of saying goodbye to the, the the ill omens of the previous year or bringing in new good omens. So I feel like culturally, you know, whatever, whether it be the lunar calendar or the solar calendar or whatever kind of system people were using to indicate that a year had passed, that there was always something centered around like, yeah, this, this sort of like... The rebirth. Yeah, rebirth, giving off energy, absorbing new energy. You know, it seems to be a very like common theme in a lot of different like new year's esque um festivals i think festivals is a good word for it very so, cool yeah so what uh what are some common new year's resolutions that you know of uh well i used to hate january and february <laughs> at the gym um, yeah. especially when i was in university and like you had gym membership for the university gym yeah. because like you know we would be pretty diligent me and my buddies and like we weren't like crazy gym rats we just like we're going a lot because it was good and healthy makes you feel good mm-hmm. um but we would you know try to be pretty diligent all year and you know come november december there's nobody there no it's so empty so nice it's so nice you, you know but then january comes around everyone comes back from christmas break and all of a sudden like you're waiting 20 minutes for the same machines yeah. there's people like and i do often find too that it's like because then there's so many more people in the gym it's much more like social atmosphere which is sometimes kind of nice sometimes kind of annoying I when people are like that in, in a talking, regular gym yeah i never want they're that. like talking all around the machine that you're trying to use everybody's staring at each other you know Ugh. Sometimes I'm sometimes I'm working out and I'm like if someone comes and asks me for some help or like you know spot them whatever whatever not a big deal. Um, sometimes though I'm like I'm in my zone like don't talk to me this is my time to be surly and not deal with other humans. But, Anytime I've gone to a, like a regular kind of like weight cardio type gym, I just put my headphones in and I don't make eye contact. Yeah, this is my time to be alone and you just happen to be in the same room. <laughs> yeah, and I mean that's generally like. Although on the flip side of it too is like I've been in situations where like I'm working out alone and I'm like, well, I would like to put another plate on the on the bar or something like that, mm-hmm. but I don't want to do that without a spotter. And like I don't really want to bother anybody. So yeah. it kind of cuts both ways. But either either way, the gym, working out. Yes, working probably out. number one. I think if you did a family feud survey says <laughs> that would be answer number one. Working out or something about weight. That's like true. Weight That's true. Because everyone puts so much emphasis on weight, and especially after the holidays too, yeah. with the Christmas and the New Year's holiday, so a lot of drinking, a lot cookies. of eating. Exactly. So yeah. people kind of tend to get to this point where they're like, "Okay, well now I'm going to lose weight and stuff like that." Yeah. Mm-hmm. And with gyms, I've heard that because you, if you look at like gym memberships, they usually say you have to sign up for the first year, right? Like you can't yeah. if you cancel within the first year, you won't get your money back, and that's because a lot of people they buy their their 
gym membership in January. They got a plan, and then by the by the end of the first month, they stopped showing up. Mm-hmm. I've uh, used to do jujitsu, and I was talking to the owner one time, and he was like, "Yeah, that's like the best time. People sign up, and then they don't come." Yeah, and it's the idea of like the best customer is one that doesn't show up. Yeah, if you're running a <laughs> subscription-based service of any kind, that yeah. rings very true, yeah. right? I mean, it does have its sort of drawbacks too, where it's like. Sometimes if you're running certain types of things, you're running to try to build like a community. Yeah. If people aren't showing up, then it's hard to kind of drive those things yeah. forward. Or something but, like jujitsu, where you usually need more than one person in order to do it properly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's very true, right? You just, yeah. you want to, you want to take those people for their money. Yes. Rope them in. Uh, um, yeah. So we've got a lot of body or health related ones. So uh, something about losing or gaining, depending on the situation or maintaining your weight, uh, working out more, uh, getting a healthier diet. Even things, smaller things like establish a skincare routine mm-hmm. or floss your teeth uh, or cutting out alcohol and substances. I kind of lumped this in to this because mm-hmm. it is more, it's like, it's a lifestyle, but it's also a health one for yeah. a lot of ways, oh, especially yeah, yeah. alcohol. And a lot of people will do like a dry January yes. or a dry February, especially again, after the holidays, people are yeah. drinking a lot. <laughs> um, so typically people will take uh, January to like dry out, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, we were going <laughs> to save, save money. Yeah. We were going to save that topic for like, I think another day. Like oh, more alcohol diving is its more. own topic. Yeah, exactly. But you often will hear that one right after the, right after the new year. Yes. Um, but that's yeah, more of a short term resolution, right? Especially if you're doing like dry January, you're really only trying to cut it out for like a month and then you might go back to having casual beer here or there. But yeah. yeah. Another January one I've heard is the, uh, I think it's like no spend January. Or something oh, like that. Yeah. Or I mm-hmm. forget what it, what the actual colloquial term is, but yeah, about like really, really sticking to a budget because everyone mm-hmm. tends to overspend going into the holidays, buying all those gifts. So then they're like, ah, I won't spend money in yeah. January. Because what do they call it? Right, it's Blue Blue Tuesday. Right, is the second or Blue Monday? I think. I have no idea. What it's you're the about. second. I can't remember if it's Blue Monday or Blue Tuesday, but it's the second Monday or Tuesday of January is typically considered the saddest day of the year. Oh. Because, and it's typically when, one, it's because, like, the days are at their shortest. They haven't really started getting longer yet. And, like, so the days are very dark if you live in North America. Um, And, yeah, the days are very dark. And typically, that's when people's credit card statements from December start to come out. And are due. So, they call it this, like, Blue Tuesday, Blue Monday or whatever because it's, like, basically it's... The, the come down from the holiday, there's not really anything to look forward to for at least another month, two months, right? Because, like, the next long weekend isn't until family day, which is the third week of February this yeah. year. And the next holiday is, well, kind of holiday is Valentine's Day. Yeah. People have strong opinions about that one. Oh, exactly. And Valentine's Day is filled with a lot of pressure as well, right? So, and, like, yeah, the next, like, statutory day off is family day, right? So you're in the kind of this, like, longest period between, like, kind of you're coming out of vacation usually, and then you're a long time until you have any more vacation, um, so people just kind of tend to get very bummed out around yeah. that time. So, yeah. yeah. So that's often why where the that's why I was, the budget mate thing made me kind of think about that because yeah, like yeah, people get hit by this and they go, oh, I gotta get better at budgeting and I gotta spend less money. Yeah. 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 Or I gotta make more money. I gotta get a better paying job or uh, start a side hustle. So yeah. Our whole generation has side hustles. Yep. Yeah. Because yeah. most jobs don't pay enough, or the pay at least hasn't kept up with inflation. So yeah. even if you did make a good amount of money three years ago, you're not real. And inflation's out of control right now, all across the world. So fun. Um, yeah. The job thing is also really interesting because uh, typically December, one of the worst times of the year to look for a job. Yeah. No one leaves their job right before Christmas. Yeah. Jan- 
January, February, one of the best times of year to look for a job. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. January comes sometimes a bit hit and miss, right? Again, because a lot of people have these bills come due. But typically January and February is, one, it's when businesses start to release their budgets for the next fiscal year. Right? Fiscal year ends in April. Or, sorry, begin the new fiscal year always begins April 1st because it's the tax year. Um, some companies will use that as their quarter system. So April will be Q1, but a lot of companies will still use a traditional quarter system. So we're technically in Q1 now, but financial quarter Q4. Um, <laughs> that's straightforward. Yeah. Just finance. Yeah. It's just because of the tax year. And so a lot of times this is when companies will release their budgets, which will tell them if they have space to hire certain positions. So a lot of the position postings will go up around now. So there's a little bit more movement uh, in jobs this time of the year and then we're also kind of still within this kind of they call what they're calling like the great resignation yeah. which does typically apply a little bit more towards like lower earning jobs you know um yeah. jobs that are sometimes maybe considered like lower on the totem pole of of job prospects mm-hmm. but uh yeah so it's a good time of year to look so often and it is as well people often sort of go into the new year and they're like this is the year i'm gonna get a new job yeah so there's your hot tip to look for new jobs yeah. At some point, mm-hmm. if, you, if you're thinking of looking, then now's a good time, says statistics. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sort of anecdotal evidence somewhat, but yeah. Yeah. And the side hustle thing is always pretty funny. And I think, it, again, it just goes with that, like, you know, Christmas gives you a time to reset, maybe start thinking about the other things you want to do. Yeah. yeah. And like we said, it's still winter, right? So you're still trapped inside, especially now, but like always in January, you're, it's not typically the nicest month to go outside. It's dark and it's cold. Yeah. So. Gotta have that. What are they, the meme now? The, you got to have that Sigma grind set. I have, I've not seen that. Uh, I've seen a meme, gri- I have not. Well, I don't know a meme, but like grind set is something I've started to really like use ironically because you mm. see it, you see people talk about it. Yeah. Like all these people. Like, like a mindset, but like but grind, grind extra hard. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Like, yeah. Cause that's, that's such yeah. like bro speak. Oh, it is. Dude, oh. You got your grind set. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. It's really dumb. <laughs> I, it just isn't a side. I've been seeing these like like TikTok reels or Instagram reels or whatever. The oh my God, the reels are, are such a, they it's a time suck you in. Well, that's the whole oh. thing, right? Like, I mean, we could do a whole thing like on the algorithms we and should. stuff like that. Um, An attention span. But there's this one that I keep seeing come up and it's like this guy and they're really, unfortunately I don't really have a better word for it, but they're really like kind of douchey. Mm. And I think they are. I mean, okay. obviously really popular. I watch them because I get this, not a sense of superiority, but I'm just like, <laughs> oh my God, like how ridiculous is this? But he's like rich people versus really rich people. Uh. And it's like the same guy. And he pretends to be like a rich guy who's like a dick about everything. And then a super rich guy who's like, because he has so much money, he's like, just like chilled out or whatever. Um, <laughs> they come up all the time. He's like become, I'm sure he's making a lot of money doing it. Um, but it just really... It's this whole sort of grind set thing, mm. the hustle. You got to hustle. I don't know. It kind of reminds me of like, you know, it's it's the same deception around like, oh, if you just worked a little bit harder, you too could be a billionaire. Yeah. Like, that's not how it works anymore. It's not how it works. It's not the world we're living in. Yeah. But yeah, one of those interesting things. So way too much of an aside, but that's okay. there you go. Start side a, hustles start, and stuff. Start a side hustle. I, yeah, the word hustle just, just kind of <laughs> triggers me. <laughs> uh, sorry, I'm going to say it one more time. If you have a cool side hustle that you've started in the last year or in the last month, uh, let us know on our socials. That's true. That'd be cool to know. Yeah, yeah it would be cool yeah. to know. Maybe we promote you, give you a shout Ooh, out. We could we do possibly do like, that. Like for like. Yeah. You, you promote us, we promote you. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, what are some other common ones? Uh, things that are cooking related, like I want to cook more, make yeah. more food. Uh, I've heard a lot of ads for HelloFresh and stuff right now, and they're <laughs> always giving out discounts. So obviously if someone's like, because everyone was talking about like, in the pandemic, have you spent too much money on 
on uh, ordering in, and I'm like, no, how? Who's ordering in multiple times a week? Who has that much money? But oh, I know apparently lots a lot of people. Of people. <laughs> oh, I know lots of people. I know um, lots of people that do it out of uh, out of a form of necessity to right, like they just have no time. Yes. Right. Like yes. I, I have a buddy who works like twelve hours a day. And yeah, he's got too much hustle. Yep. No too much hustle. Food yep. prep. Yep. Um, yeah. So cooking related ones uh, wanted to cook more, or again tying it to health again. Yep. It ties into budget. Ties into a lot of them. Uh, and another one that ties into health is uh, getting more sleep slash waking up early. It's fun when people make both of those at once and you're like, good luck. Because you have to not only shift your sleep cycle, but you have to sleep for longer. <laughs> and people, there's not enough respect these days as well that like people are different in the okay. way that they sleep, in the way that their body wants to cycle through the day, right? Like there are people out there who are true night owls where like they're, yeah. they are most active at night. Their brain's most active at night. There are people more like, like I'm kind of one of those rise with the sun type people. So I do find the winter quite difficult. Cause like I typically am a morning person, wake up six, six thirty. Yeah. but in when the winter it's, it's so dark. <laughs> exactly. So it's quite draining on your brain. But, uh, and then there's people in between as well that are a little bit more just like really regimented. So it doesn't even really matter when the sun comes up, or comes down, like, and we're more active kind of in the middle part of the day. Uh, mm -hmm. so there's, so sometimes I think a lot of people, especially because of the way our whole world is set up. It's really set up for yeah. the morning person. Yeah. Yeah. Even the though morning I morning person yeah. to burn the midnight oil, but you have to get up to be functional in the morning. Yeah. But then Absolutely. you're just, Yeah. And it's just so, you know, a little, I think even like, the, yeah, the waking up earlier, getting more sleep, but it's more like staying true to your sleep schedule. Ah. Because laugh, maybe, but <laughs> yeah, uh, a lot of people want to learn a new skill or hobby. Um, this is usually a lot of the time of the year where people will start trying to learn a language. Ah, you know, yes. they'll be hitting up those language apps and or, stuff like that. Or I'm going to learn to play guitar and they pick up the guitar that's been sitting in their house for months. Yeah. That trying to write a volcano song yep. uh, <laughs> on a banjo. But yeah, exactly. So there's lots of like little ones. Um, I think one of the ones you really see a lot in this day and age, in the pandemic especially, is the mindfulness stuff. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm going to journal every day. Oh, I'm going to meditate for five minutes every day. You know, I'm going to be happier is your note here, which I'm like, <laughs> ah, yes, what an achievable, what an achievable New Year's resolution. Well, it goes with being happier, feeling more fulfilled and finding greater purpose, which are probably not very good ways to phrase your, your yeah. resolutions because yeah. they're not, they're not like tangible goals. They're just these amorphous things, but the journaling and mindfulness and meditation, if you can manage to get those things in, they can help your mindset so much. Mm -hmm. they, they can't overcome if you have like a really terrible job. Or, like, you're in a really bad relationship situation or something. They're not going to fix those things. But they can help you, like, reflect a lot more on who you are and find out what works for you. Like, what your sleep cycle is best as. And you can even, like, you could track those sorts of things. You could just be like, man, I'm feeling a lot of emotions. And you just write them down. And then you go, okay, I have, like, I got them out, you know. And that, that helps. So if you are looking for a resolution, just, like, kind of a very low, a low cost to get into it, I would, I would highly recommend journaling or meditation or something. You know? That's true. And that's not to say that, like, any of these resolutions are good or bad, like... But but the way you phrase them and the way you structure them really impacts your success. Mm, absolutely. Like, yeah, if you just said, like, I'm going to be happier, you're like, that doesn't really... Does that mean you're going to, like, go to therapy and address your, your childhood traumas to figure out why you're not happy? Or are you just going to, like smile more. Mm -hmm. And that's a really good transition to kind of like the next part of this is like, you know, what is it about like what like we know kind of why we typically use New Year's to make these New Year new me. Exactly, right? It's <laughs> it's a it's a very consistent you know, it's this basically it's a point in time that we've almost universally agreed that like this is when the year resets. This is, yeah. you know, when we go from one state of being to the next state of being. 
even though that's not strictly speaking true, but like, you know, this is the point, the relative point where we've decided that the earth has done a full circle. Yeah. And so, the, the New York Post uh, said, New Year's is an opportunity to reset, regroup, and revitalize. Yeah. And I think it does. It comes really with like, we kind of are in a very like Judeo, uh, Judeo-Christian centric world. So we've centered a, a lot of things around, I mean, I know that Christmas is not actually like a christian holiday it kind of comes from saturnalia which is a pagan <laughs> holiday and it was co-opted by the church when they're trying to get rid of the pagans the whole thing whole but thing. um but like obviously there's but like there's a lot of we've kind of decided that we were going to center all these festivals around this particular time of the year and we were all going to kind of take a break around this time of the year um at least particularly in kind of like the quote-unquote western world yeah. yeah and since we've all in the Western world, have, we're all kind of on the same page with this as our new year. It's really a, it's a, like, feels for all of us like a real blank slate. Like, this is your time to, like, let go of the past year and start, like, good on your resolutions and, like, yeah. start making your life a little better. And, yeah, and then you have the kind of the camaraderie of everybody doing it together. So it, it's, it feels a little bit safer to make some big, like, sweeping change. Like, oh, yeah. I'm going to start eating more fruits and vegetables. I, I don't know why that was my chosen example of big sweeping change because you should really, just eat more fruits and vegetables but that one is a really good thing and we'll, we'll touch on this more later but like the group psychology of it is so can be so important because like you can at any time of year be like i'm gonna eat healthier but if all of your friends eat garbage and you always meet up and you hang out while eating garbage you trying to change your habits is going to be very very tough but if everyone at the same time kind of goes hey you know i'm going to start trying to eat a little healthier then you automatically have this support mm. and like and the lack of temptation all roll into one. I don't know why, but when you said like, oh, when you and your friends get together and you just want to eat garbage, all I could think of was like a family of raccoons going through <laughs> dumpsters. It's like they're eating literal garbage. But, also that. Yeah. Also, if you're a family of raccoons, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trash, <laughs> trash shaming you. Yeah. Do electric <laughs> raccoons dream of New Year's resolutions? Don't they dream of dumpsters? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I was trying to do a playoff of. I know. I just. Yeah. Anyway, anyway <laughs> moving on from my um, failed references. Yeah, so it's kind of like this, like, second chance, right, to improve yeah. the quality of your life. Um, so, why is it so hard to keep New Year's resolutions, Sarah? Oh, there's so many, so many reasons. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't ready That's for that fair. question. <laughs> Those are the best questions. That's how you know I'm a hard-hitting news reporter. Because <laughs> I catch you unawares um, and bring up the best in people. Okay. Or the worst. So, what, <laughs> what was your question again? Well, so I would argue, like, from my perspective, I've never been a huge New Year's resolution fan. Yeah. Because I feel like there's this sort of, I don't know why false equivalency is in my brain that's not, that doesn't mean what I want it to mean. Um, I feel like there's this sort of false sense of purpose behind a New Year's resolution. And I feel like that most people who really tie up making big sweeping life changes to something like the New Year's resolution. I view it the same way as sort of like if you're in your day-to-day -day life and you're like, oh, you know, I just need a little reset. If I just had like a week to do, to get this, my mind right, and I, would, I could be doing this. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, oh, I just need to get through this project and then I'll be able to do this. I need to get out of this job and then I'll, I'll have the energy to do this. Yeah. You know, whatever that X positive or better habit on the other side of it is. The point for me, at least just internally, is that I don't really believe in those, that those things exist, that those spaces of like, ah, I'm going to create an opportunity to reset. Like right, I don't, yeah. I, I, I get the psychology of, especially like we just said, right, with this big kind of collective sense of reset. I think that that 
I think it does hold some water, but I think like personally, if you spend your whole life sort of going, well, I'll just wait until I'm through this project. I'll do it tomorrow. Or we're waiting to have, we're waiting for the right time to have kids. Just as an example, there's never a right time to have kids. Yeah. Right. Like kids are a huge burden and undertaking. Um, <laughs> kids are a huge burden. <laughs> well, they are <laughs> right. They're a financial burden. Their time suck. I right? agree with they're you. Se- it's just a funny way to phrase it. I know. And I'm sure they're very fulfilling. I don't have any kids of my own, but like, you know, it's just that like people, you, it's just the example, right? You often hear yeah. people say stuff like that. I, I'll, I need to wait until I'm ready. Like, well, I, exactly. And you do probably like, yeah. you might want to make sure that you're financially ready and yeah. secure and stuff like that and secure in your relationship, of course. But like, if that's how you're choosing to, to raise children, but, um, but no, I, I get it. It's yeah. the, it's the like, I'll do it tomorrow idea. Right. And like, Bo exactly. Burnham, Bo Burnham has a really good joke about this. He's like, Something it says something about like tomorrow, and he's like, Tomorrow is a relative concept, it will never arrive. Yeah, I remember we were in Costa Rica, that's where I was taking my vacation, and we walked past this one restaurant, and we were looking for somewhere to eat. And they had like a little cardboard sign over front, it was like handwritten, and it said, Free tacos mananas, which is tomorrow. Uh, so it's like, Yeah, uh-huh. you know, the sign's always there because it's never tomorrow, it's never tomorrow. So free tacos will always be tomorrow, so, so do it today. Yeah, but... exactly. But that's sort of my like, that's my personal belief towards new year's resolutions does not have to be yours doesn't have to be anybody else's don't let me rain on your parade if new year's if you found that new year's is like this amazing time for you to reset yourself and sort of set yourself on this path then power to you yeah if it works for you you. there's no judgment but oh absolutely do what works for you absolutely i've rarely set them because i find i'm i'm in the sense of like what why do i have to start it now now today is actually no different than any other day and I could start it at any time and I kind of resent being told that I have to do it now and that if I don't do it now I'm a failure and if I fail at it then I feel even worse um but when we do set uh resolutions one more thing on why we do it Mm. uh we're using a very important concept called self-efficacy which is the the by virtue of aspiring to a goal and following through on it I have a sense of control over what's happening in my life which Mm. is also from the I don't remember what article that's from but yeah which is like yeah I'm gonna Maybe life feels like it got a little out of control, especially like maybe you spent way too much and you drank too much and you ate too much. So you're going to get your life back under control. So we start a resolution and we, it releases a lot of dopamine, our one of our happy brain chemicals. We feel great. It activates our reward and pleasure centers and their levels are really high at the beginning, but they start to drop. And that's why we don't stick to our resolutions. Mm-hmm. I, I got there eventually. So people start <laughs> failing their resolutions and uh, they've actually done some calculations on this that... It tends to happen around the third Thursday of January. Which is hilarious because that's the day we're recording this. Yeah. The third Thursday. So see, we're still relevant with this topic. Um, but yeah, so because uh, that drop off in the third week is more common, which uh, attributes or it has been attributed to like a loss of motivation. Mm. And part of this is, uh, as a quote, January is arguably one of the hardest months to make such a commitment. Days are short and temperatures can be frigid. Evolutionarily speaking, that means our natural instinct is to stay in, eat more, and make excuses for hitting the treadmill tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've often, like, anecdotally found, like, um, I usually am a pretty decent, like, I'm pretty diligent about, like, being a winter runner, because I usually run outside, and I'm usually okay in the winter, but I often find that, like, December and January are the months that I really, like, fall off of it, and I'm Mm -hmm. not out there as much. One, because it's often gets really cold. It was so cold here for a few weeks. (laughs) It was, like, it was, like, deadly cold. Like, you did not want to go out and run. I've done it in minus 30 before, and it's, like, a pretty miserable experience. Like, if if you do it, if you're really diligent about it, like, you get over it, but, again, it's, like... If you're not used to it, your body is, like, what are you doing? If you're, 
if, yeah, if you're trying to restart a habit of like, <laughs> I'm going to run every day, it's almost a good way to do it because then you're like, well, I've run in the worst conditions. How much worse can it get? But in the same breath, it's incredibly difficult to say to yourself at like eight in the morning. It's like, yeah, I'm going to go out in this minus 35 with the wind blasting at minus 15, right? Yeah. And run. Like that's insane. Um, <laughs> and I often find that like by March usually is actually when I really start to kind of like find my stride again. Pun intended, maybe. I don't know. Um, But yeah, and I think that's a really good thing. I think it's sort of one of the interesting um, kind of the dichotomy of uh, the New Year's resolution is that we've picked this time of year to sort of say, like, this is when the year changes over, but also it's going to be the hardest point of the year to, like, actually make any change because you're in kind of, like, the dourest months of the year. Yeah, let's let's set that treadmill to uphill and go for it. If you... Fun tip, if you are running on a treadmill, you should almost always run at a one degree incline. Why? Because that will more accurately, um, because the treadmill is doing some work for you, right? Like the treadmill is really what's moving and you're just, your legs are just kind of landing on it. Obviously it's like, it's not like running on a treadmill is no effort, but you should put it up to a one degree incline because it will then more accurately represent what running on real ground would be like. It doesn't feel like a perpetual false flat. Exactly. Um, and it's just like a little bit extra, like a little bit, like one degree, your body's not really going to sense that difference too much, but it will, like, it will force you to kind of like propel your body a little bit more and it'll just more accurately represent what running in a real scenario is, um, without kind of this assistance of the treadmill below your feet. And you'll actually find it's a cool little experiment, like do your normal run on a flat treadmill and then do it the next day with one degree and your, your times will change. Ah, fitness tips with Davis. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. but not even your times are changed right because like you might set it to a certain time or whatever but like you'll feel the difference yeah. yeah cool well so we can we have a resolution yeah we fall off by the third thursday in january so how can we actually achieve them what can we do what what can be done sarah nothing no uh, <laughs> wait for tomorrow <laughs> yeah wait for tomorrow <laughs> wait for wait for next year do it again yeah um, oh i missed it <laughs> yeah um there's lots of you know, there's lots of like little things that people talk about and we're going to kind of, we're going to kind of transition now a little bit like, because we'll keep talking about resolutions and that'll kind of color this whole conversation, but we're also going to kind of transition a little bit into this conversation around like habits because it's ultimately what we're really talking about. What is a new year's resolution, but a habit that starts on new year's. Exactly. A resolution. The resolution is the like agreement to create a new habit. Generally. Create a new habit or break a bad one. Often. You know, sometimes there are specific goal type ones like one of the ones we didn't really talk about a type of resolution that is really popular now are like eco resolutions, yeah. right? I'm not going to use any paper towel this year. I'm not going to do, you know, I'm going to recycle better, whatever it might Those be. Those are still habits though. Hey, oh, very much so. But I would argue that like using no paper towel, you're, you're probably breaking a habit. Yeah. Like of like, oh, well, every time there's a spill, I just use a paper towel rather than a cloth. Yeah. But I think a little bit more like, there's a little bit more of like an offer on kind of of that versus like, oh, I'm going to go to the gym every day. Right. Is this like really systematic, like a very dedicated habit yeah. versus like, I'd know, say like the yeah. job one is more goal based. That's true. Yeah. Compared to the habit ones. Yeah. But well, yeah, that's yeah. true as well. Right. Cause you know, um, but it's I would like even argue time. that, you know, oh, I want to get a new job is maybe, I think a better way to structure that might be like, I'm going to apply to at least one job every week. Ah, Right, because now you've created something, and I'm getting a bit ahead of myself, but you're creating something kind of small, repeatable, and achievable, and versus, like, I'm going to get a new job. It's like, well... It's very big, amorphous. And it's yeah. like, that's 10 steps down, that's right? That's That's, you know, applicate, like, searching, applications, 
interviews, and then the luck of getting a job, which really is ultimately what a lot of that kind of stuff comes down to yeah. in the end. So you're kind of basing your New Year's resolution on something that at the very end point, it's not really in your control anyway. <laughs> so you're better off picking something that like, well, if I apply to a job every week until I find something that I like, both, I think you avoid the pitfall of just taking a job because it's new, because it's something else, and which sometimes does not work out. And I think, again, you've you've created something that like is not intrinsically tied to a result. Very it's true. more about a process. And that's a very good segue into one of the best things to do to help achieve your resolutions is making a structure or a schedule for yourself, thinking more short-term and mini-goals yep. as opposed to the end goal, and celebrate achieving the mini-goals. So instead of being like, oh man, I didn't get a new job this week, you can be like, hey, I applied to a job, I like did my research, I did my cover letter, I got it all sent off, and I'm feeling good. And then you can like pat yourself on the back because you accomplished your mini goal. You give yourself a little bit of hit of the happy brain chemicals instead of being like, oh, I did not achieve my goal. I suck. Yeah. You got to think about it a little bit, right? Like you want to microdose your, your rewards <laughs> essentially. It's, that's true. It's a good right? <laughs> And again, it's the same sort of thing, right? If your goal is, oh, I want to get a new job. Well, every time you submit an application, you've kind of trained, you've kind of told your brain that like, well, this is not the reward. You know, there's no reward for this. Yeah. Every time you get an interview, which is generally a really exciting thing, mm -hmm. you know, well, this is not the point for a reward. You're only allowing yourself to sort of, you're, you're kind of telling yourself, I'm only really going to fully reward myself or fully have achieved this, which is what your brain is seeking to give itself that reward at this very, very end result. Versus yeah. again, just to keep using that example, you know, if you say, well, I'm going to apply to a job every week. Well, then every week that you do that, you're going to give yourself that little hit. And it'll get to the point too, where you're like, you know, maybe you're on Saturday of the week and you're like, well, I haven't applied to anything yet, but I know if I take 20 minutes and do it, I'll get that little bit of dopamine and I'll have achieved what I set out to achieve for the whole week. And I won't, you know, and it's easier to kind of get over that one little hump rather than saying like, oh, it's been a month and I haven't applied to anything. I better do 10 all at once. And now that's my whole day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it can, it can like, you can give yourself just the like the satisfaction of knowing you did it, but you can also track it, right? Like yep. for something like that, I think it'd be really good if you had a tracker and it was like, just write it on your calendar, like applied to job. And then you'd be like, you see it every single week and you see that you have accomplished this goal. Mm -hmm. um, just try to keep your, whatever your little, like whatever your mini celebration is, keep it like in line with what you're doing. Cause there are some people who are like, oh, I went to the gym. Now I get a treat. You're like, well, if your goal is to like be healthier then that's maybe not the best resolution to use. And that really does. And you're right. Like, that's a good point. Like that comes down to as well, like what ultimately is the goal, right? Yes. If, if it's like, well, I just want to go to the gym every day to work out because yeah. the exercise itself makes me feel good. I don't really have any necessarily like fitness goals or like, you know, body appearance goals or then whatever. Great. It might be. Have your cookie, man. Exactly. Do right. It. Because then you have, you've, you know, and I think you, but I think your point still stands, right? Is that like your reward should fall in line with the, the depth of the goal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it shouldn't be like, antithetical to the goal at large <laughs> yeah exactly like I used to do a thing where if I when I was looking for new jobs and like even like little things and stuff like that if I got a new job I'd usually then I would make the excuse of like okay well that thing that frivolous thing that you were maybe yeah. not gonna buy like I think the last job that I got I went out and I bought myself like a basketball like a nice basketball nice. so it's like I need a basketball I've been kind of holding off buying one but now it's like my present to myself because I did it I got a new job there you go and it was like that was pretty in line with it you know I mean, I could have made the argument was like, go spend a thousand dollars on something, but like... <laughs> but yeah, giving yourself a little present and like yeah. rewarding yourself for doing something good. Yeah. Whereas like, I'm not going to do that every time I submit a job application. Yeah. I'm going to have <laughs> so, way too many so basketballs. Many basketballs. <laughs> and like, obviously be different stuff. But then you're just like, <laughs> then you're just spending money. Anyway, it's yes. kind of a big, 
diatribe. But, but yeah, so structures, mini goals, and celebrating them can be very, very important to yeah. help uh, spread out those happy brain chemicals and give yourself something to look back on. So when you're in the middle of achieving a bigger goal, you can be like, look at what I've done. I am taking steps to achieve this goal. I feel good about myself. I can do this. You start doing happy brain talk. Happy brain chemicals come with happy brain talk. And it's good. And that helps a lot. Yeah. The big thing here being that like the best way to maintain a habit like this is like, like we said, like small, repeatable stuff. But you want to make sure that you're kind of like you're for most things, you're going to want to ease yourself in. Yeah. I have some I have some different feelings about this for certain types of things, yeah, particularly around and particularly when we'll get into next more around breaking habits yes. as opposed to making habits. I do really think when you're making a habit, you're better off to kind of not overwhelm yourself right away. If, if your yeah. goal is to go to the gym more, maybe trying to go to the gym six days of the week is yeah. not a good way to start yeah. because you're only setting yourself up for disappointment when, because your whole life up to that point has not been set up to go to the gym six days a week. Yeah. You're basically putting yourself in a position where you're never going to be able to achieve that. I'll right. actually bring this up when we talk about our own resolutions far later on the podcast. Excellent. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, or like if, you're, if your plan is to start waking up early, it's going to be a lot easier to be like, okay, I tend to wake up at 9 a.m. now and I want to wake up at 6. It's going to be a lot easier to shift that time by like 15 minutes a Also day. better for your biology. Much better for your biology. Do it all at once. Shock therapy. Yeah. Uh, switch it a little bit as opposed to being like, okay, January 1, we're going to get up at 6 but I still went to bed at the normal time, so I'm going to have a few bad days. And you can do it that way, but it is tougher on your biology, a little mm -hmm. better for your system, and it gives you a higher chance of success if you make, again, this is a mini goal thing, right? Yeah. And again, and within that too, right? Like if that's your goal to wake up a little bit earlier every day, don't be, don't punish yourself overly for backslides because yeah. that's often how people completely give up on it's resolutions. It's a huge problem, yeah. Yeah, because you're sort of, we, we often, and we're just wired this way, we'll have an all or nothing mindset yeah. of like, well, I'm either going to the gym six days a week or I might as well not be going at all. And that's why it's so important, one, again, to set sort of realistic expectations at the beginning for yourself. And then when you, you know, when you have the cheat day or when, you know, it's, it's better to something is sort someone had sort of said that to me about dieting, especially, and I, I'm going to mess up the kind of quote here, but it's like, it's better to like fall off the wagon and have the cookie when you really need it versus like to give up because you've pushed yourself so hard and not be able to cope with a lapse. Yeah. Right. And that like, well, I've been on this diet for six months and I haven't had any cookies, but now that I've had a cookie, it might as well not have done any of it. No, it's better to teach yourself that like, no, you can, you can, even as people, like we will make character development and then we'll also regress and then we'll yeah. have to relearn lessons. Right. And it's like, obviously all of our goals as individuals is to try to not relearn those lessons as much as possible, but it happens. And the more forgiveness we have for ourselves, the more likely we're going to be able to get back up on that horse and try again. Yeah. And the idea of like falling off the wagon, like you can get back on the wagon. Like yeah. how fast is your wagon going that you can't get back on it? Like if you're making a goal, that's just for yourself and you're like, Oh, I missed a day at the gym. That's fine. Go tomorrow. You and know, it, or like, mm -hmm. oh man, I, I shouldn't have had that cookie. That's fine. Don't have one tomorrow. Like kind self-talk is so important to yeah. ke help keep you motivated. Yeah. I and, and especially because like falling off the wagon and then telling yourself that now you're off the wagon, it's over is only, it's, it's, it's only a downward spiral. Right? Yeah. Like I went to, I, mean, I went you're to, already off the wagon. So you're just going to keep falling down. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, I already went to, I went to a, um, like a self-directed high school. And I would see it a lot where people would, you start to get behind in a course, right? And you might have certain goals of like hitting certain things. And then because you're behind, 
you're sort of like, oh, well, I'm already behind, so, like, it's already over, kind of, and you get more and more behind, and then you've got people trying to do whole courses in, like, two weeks, because at eventually, you get to this point where, like, you know, there's a, there's an end point where you have to have achieved certain things, right? If you want to graduate high school, you have to have this course. Now, all of a sudden, you're trying to do it in two weeks. Whereas if you had not punished yourself so severely every time you got a week behind or two weeks behind and just sort of kept hammering away at it, you wouldn't be in this situation where now you're doing an extreme amount of work all at once. You might still be compressing your work at the end, but you're not going to be as like overwhelmed about it. Yeah, you're not setting like one big unrealistic goal. Yeah. You're setting a bunch of smaller goals that are, it's a lot easier to accomplish a bunch of smaller goals than one giant massive goal. There's one more thing that can be very helpful for trying to achieve your resolutions, which is getting support for them. Mm. So like part of the reason why, like we mentioned with New Year's, why it can be such a, it can be a successful time is because you can get a bunch of people on board. And if you have like the one scenario, you have people who decide to do the same goal with you. Mm -hmm. So then you're mm -hmm. going to help hold each other accountable. You're going to, you're in this together. You can complain about it together if you want to. Or like, uh, if you have a gym buddy, if yeah, your resolution is to go really to the good. gym, mm -hmm. you got a gym buddy. Um, I want to eat healthier food. If you have friends doing it too, who you see a lot, then you're all going to be helping to like encourage each other in that goal. And this is also why I think around this time, people will start posting their resolutions and their goals yeah. on social media. Cause then they're like, Hi, like social media world. I am now held accountable to all of you for accomplishing this thing. So you have you've told other people about it. It's not a secret anymore. So if you if you do trip up, there are going to be people who can call you on it. As long as they do it in like a kind and compassionate way, as opposed to being jerks about it. But yeah, having support and having the community around you can really be helpful, especially depending what the goal is. Yeah, I I fall a little bit like into I, I do agree with you. Like I think um support is really important for certain types of goals, especially uh, especially again certain types of bad habit breaking. Bad habit, yeah, for can, sure. It can be really powerful to have a group that's all on that journey together. And we'll again we'll talk about that with habits. But I think I personally I, I don't know why I think this is just really a personal thing for me. But like I'm a very I tend to be with these kinds of things like a very superstitious person for whatever uh -huh. reason. So I've had <laughs> I have always found that like for some reason like I don't always want to tell people what my like um, if I have like a new year's resolution or those sorts of things, because it puts this undue pressure on achieving what people will sometimes interpret as like, well, this is the mark of you achieving it. The big unachievable goal, as opposed to the small repeatable development of a goal or habit, yeah. which is really what you're trying to achieve with a resolution. It's not about this, like, well, now I can bench press 350 pounds, whatever. Um, which would be pretty unrealistic. Um, <laughs> you know, so I have always fallen into this camp where like, I don't always like to share my like New Year's resolution because I'm a bit superstitious about it. And like sometimes I've had, for example, when I've looked for jobs in the past, I don't often like to tell people when I'm in the interview stage for a job. You know, some people I will, like my parents and stuff like that. But like even then sometimes I've like, because I just have this superstition that I'm like, when I tell people about a job that I'm applying for that I'm really excited about, I've, I have just built this superstition in my head that like, it hurts my chances of getting the job. Not because it actually does, but just because I've sort of sent this pattern at times when I'm like, well, I've told everybody about this job I'm really excited about, and then you don't get it. Oh, and then yes. you kind of have to go back and explain to everybody what happened. That's part that's, of it. That's a frustrating thing, yeah. But like also it's just like one of those like weird little superstition things. So I do find that sometimes like support can go either way yep. for, for me uh, as an individual. But Absolutely. Yeah. And like I have the resolutions that I set and... I don't think I've told anyone in detail about them, but it's also the type of resolution I set is like, I'm going to do this stuff. 
mm-hmm. and there we go. Yeah. But yeah. As, as soon as you tell people, the re- the thing with the accountability is it does put pressure on you to then achieve your goal because you told other people about it and they're going to ask you about it yeah. and you don't want it to just be this like source of guilt and shame. So now you don't even talk to that person anymore because they're going to ask you and you don't want them to ask you because you're not ac- accomplishing it. And you get into like this, like, like a particular spiral. volcano song <laughs> that someone hasn't written and keeps getting bothered about. But yeah, but, and that's, and that honestly yeah. is it for me a little bit. Like it's, um, I also don't like the pressure. Like yeah, I, I get it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But so, I figured we were doing this, so we had to set some. <laughs> oh, no, no, that's totally fair. Um, but yeah, so let's talk a little bit about habits, because ultimately that's really what we're discussing here. And I think understanding what habits are, why we make habits, how we create and break habits is ultimately like the crux of what will make a New Year's resolution like succeed or not succeed. Yeah, New Year's resolution, yeah. like we, David said earlier, it's just a habit. Yeah. It's just a habit with a different coat on. Exactly. Because it's winter. Oh God, the puns, <laughs> the puns are out to play today. Um, but yeah, so to, to talk about habits, we, we need to talk a little bit about psychology and a lot about neuroscience, neuroscience. which, which are two things that are intrinsically linked to each other. What? Um, obviously the organ of the brain affects the function of the brain what? and the, 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 um, the presentation of the brain, which is like what our, what argue kind of like psychology is, it's the outward presentation of our neuroscience. Oh, I thought you meant like brain imaging. Well, which is the. But, and, then, and again, this is where this really interesting interplay between these two subjects comes in, right? It's like psychology has certain uses for brain imaging, mm-hmm. whereas neuroscience has other uses. Sometimes those uses are the same or similar. Sometimes they're wildly divergent from mm-hmm. each other, right? Um, but the main thing is, is that like, so our brains are a big computer. One of the most, as to our knowledge, the most complex computer that life has ever sort of evolved, at least on this planet. And they're incredibly energy- uh demanding. intensive intensive yeah. yes exactly and our brain basically is looking for the simplest way to do everything and anything right i'm sure you've seen some of these like optical illusions or little brain tricks yeah. on the internet or stuff where it's like look at this you know look at this image and then is it a it, rabbit is it a duck yeah and, and and that's not so much even like that our the efficiency of our brains like difference in perception and stuff but there's things where it's like our brain doesn't want our brain wants to take shortcuts wherever possible yes so there's a classic one where it's something like if you're shown like a static background and then things change in it or whatever right eventually the background the your brain basically stops seeing the background if it stays really consistent for a number of images and then if you make a small change in what that background is your brain won't register it all the time is this like the 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 basketball video and it's like follow the ball count the passes and then it and then afterwards it's like did you see the guy in the monkey suit yeah like, it, what <laughs> it is stuff like that it's exactly like that right because you're telling your brain like this is the important information yeah that's here focus right? on this focus on this piece of information it's, it's almost the way that like, a magic trick works right uh, um, misdirection misdirection right because your brain is saying you everything is telling you right or the magician or the illusionist or the the computer program whatever it is is telling you look at this thing look at this thing look at this thing so you focus on this thing and your brain sort of goes, this is what's important. Everything else is sort of just adjacent to this. It's tangential. It's not important information. So when some, when a change happens in the background, like, did you see the guy appear? Did you see him throw the ball behind him or hide the card behind his other palm rather than, or palm the quarter, whatever it might be? It, the answer is no, because your brain is not focused on it. So your brain's not even really picking up on the change to the background because you've essentially told it the background is static. Um, and so, yeah. I get tricked by magic tricks all the time like 
a friend's doing card tricks to me and I'm like really impressed for the first couple and then I start getting mad because I can't figure it out and I feel like I should and I feel like I'm I'm looking where I'm not supposed to be looking which should help me and I can't figure them out. Yeah, and these people like like you know like a re- like a really good illusionist, right? Like they're a master at this. So that yeah. it's not only just that they the trick how it's constructed is all designed to like make you look at the thing that you're not supposed to look at but then they've also trained this skill to make their hands do it in so quickly and so well that you you can't even notice right it's like the old um ball in a cup um like street (laughs) game where they're gonna deceive you right it's because they've gotten so good oh that one right where they put the ball under the cup so there's a family guy bit that's like ball in a cup oh yeah the toy yeah there's a ball on a string and it's attached to a cup and it just started playing in my head yeah as you said ball in a cup but no you're talking about like the cup switching game yeah the shell game marble and shell game game. yeah Yeah. exactly right um and it's Mm -hmm. that they've gotten so good at the sleight of hand that you you don't notice what they're doing right it's both it's all of those things together you're focused on something different and then they have become so competent at hiding what they're doing but Essentially, this is all to say that our brains want to do things in the most efficient way possible, and it makes them vulnerable to certain types of shortcomings, and that's more into the, like the deception and the illusion kind of thing. Yes. But basically what happens is that our brain doesn't want, when it comes to our habits, our brain doesn't want to spend time thinking about the repetitive things that we do every day, right? You, there's a classic one, right? Like, do you put your left sock or your right sock on first? It might even be hard for you to think of without like going and putting a pair of shoes or socks on. I think on. I put my left sock on first. Yeah. Because I want, I'd rather stand on my right leg first in the morning. It, well, exactly, right? And so this is just it, right? You don't know yeah. consciously, but 100%, probably 95% plus of the time, you are going to do it the same way. Oh. And if you were to do it the opposite way, uh, um, your brain would feel weird. For example, how do you cross your arms? Which arm's on top? Am I allowed just, to cross them? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Like cross your arms. Right arm. Do it at home way. with with you, right? My right arm is always on top. Now cross your arm the other way. Feels super weird. I can't even do. It. I tried to do it, and I and I actually just ended up rotating all my arms. <laughs> right. It feels weird to cross your arm a different way. I do this with crossing my legs. Crossing my legs one way is like perfectly fine, uh, and then I cross them the other way, and it's like it feels so weird. My feet don't sit at the right spot. It's like one leg is really high. Exactly. And this is because these are small, repeatable activities that our brain, that our bodies and our brains do all of the time. And our brains have sort of decided that like, this is always the way you're going to do it. I don't want to think about you crossing your arms anymore. I'm tired of thinking about it. It's, <laughs> it's too much brain power to think about something you're going to do on and off a hundred times a day. So this is the way you're always going to do it. Is this the same thing of like, did I turn the stove off? Or like, did I lock the car? Did I lock the car? Because it's like, it's part of a habit, so you don't actively think about it. Exactly. So often what people will sometimes say is that if they're someone, in particular people that struggle with OCD, is what they'll say is that a good trick for, say, to remember if you've locked the door is to come up with what is essentially a safe word, an odd word that you wouldn't use in normal context, to indicate to yourself that you've done that. Huh. So I knew someone who um, would always kind of, if they didn't actively think about locking their door when they left, even though they would almost always lock their door because it was a habit, they would get, you know, it didn't matter how they, they could be an hour into their day. And if they started thinking, did I lock my door? They would essentially have to drive home, check, go back to work because they could not, their brain would not let them move past if I did this or not. And that's more a symptom of the OCD. But the trick is to sort of say, every time you lock your door or close your garage door, you're going to say the word avocado right? Not a word that you're always going to bring up in normal context. So, you know, they're not trying to think, did I lock the door? Because that activity is so habit-based. You're not actually going to remember if you did it or not, because it was automatic. But if you think, did I say that word avocado? Yes, right? And again, obviously, at a, to a certain point, 
that may also become a habit. You might have yeah. to switch the word up or the sort of thing, but you're exactly right. So our our brain is essentially on autopilot when it starts to do these things. You know, you put your sh one shoe on before the other. You tie your shoelaces. You don't think about those things very actively because our brain doesn't want to devote more energy than it needs to to do these different things. And habits can run this huge gambit from the super mundane, like which sock you put on first, but I 100% guarantee you that there's a particular way your brain likes to do it. <laughs> and... And stuff that can be deleterious to our health and advantageous to our health. Mm -hmm. And habits go in all of these different ways. And they're built through the learning and the repetition. Is this a bit of an aside? Yeah. But is this what it is with, like, how you kind of become handed? Like, we're all, we all have a dominant hand. But there's people, like, if you trained yourself in right and left hands from an early age, like, you can develop them. And like yep. I had ligament strain in my thumbs for a bit, so I couldn't use my right hand as much. I started to use my left hand a lot more. And you can like develop the skills to be able to like eat with your left hand and stuff. But because you start doing it with one hand and then you keep doing it with that hand and then you keep doing everything else with that hand, it like becomes a habit to use that hand. Absolutely. And this is a little bit that neuroplasticity stuff, oh, right? Yeah. As well. Is that our brains are really highly adaptable, especially when we're young. Is we're making lots of new pathways before our brain starts to really prune them to gain these efficiencies, right? Our right. brain wants to really diverge, explore, learn lots of different ways of doing different things. Touch all the things. Exactly. And then start <laughs> to say, okay, well now I know what these things are and I, now I know the sequence of events that I need to do to achieve this particular goal. So I don't need the 17 other ways of doing it. I need the one way of doing it that's the best way or that I've decided is my most efficient way or that the, the way that I end up doing it all the time yeah and so it's it's very true with handedness like my father was born left-handed at a time when like it was considered very disadvantageous to be a left-handed person my grandfather literally trained the left-handedness out of him my dad is still very ambidextrous and is obviously a pretty right-brained thinker mm -hmm. um it, you know both but he's pretty evenly like analytical as well but like um has some level of ambidextrousness right um and then my brothers and i we're all right-handed but we're all left-handed swings in everything it's very interesting i was also talking to someone this week on my on, on one of my sport like recreational sports teams who is a left-handed hockey swing a right-handed baseball swing and a right-handed golf swing and i thought that and is a right-handed person which i thought was so bizarre because i've never met anyone who had different swings in different sports. I've met a lot of people that are right-handed with right-handed swings, left-handers with left-handed swings, and a lot of righties with left-handed swings. But, I mean, left-handed left swings are a little bit more rare to begin with. But, um... I was, when I was in gymnastics, yeah. I had, I was like, I did some things with my right side and some things with my left side. And then I switched clubs and they tried to, like, train it out of me. And I just ended up with, like, I had, like, ended up with, like, half and half skills, which is annoying because you can't, like, link them together <laughs> in the way that you're supposed to. But this idea of, like, your brain trying to, like, find the most efficient path... It's a, there's this gardening show called, what's it called? Big Dreams, Small Spaces. It's a British one. It's so charming. I highly recommend it. It's with Monty Don. Uh, it, and there's this uh, idea of like, okay, I have my garden and if it's just like a bunch of grass and stuff and you build a path and people always want like a winding path because they think it's pretty. And then he goes, how are you actually going to walk on your lawn though? If you're trying to get from like your house to your shed, are you going to like take the extra five seconds to go on the windy path? Or are you just going to go straight across? And they're always like, I'm going to go straight across. Like if you want a windy path, you have to put a bunch of obstacles in the way to force you to take the windy path. But so it's like in your brain, your brain is not, you'd be like, I'm going to do it this way. And then your brain like, yeah, it's more efficient to do it this yeah. other way. And people want to do that with gardens too, because like, 
Um, <clears throat> big gardens will have winding paths because it creates a sense of mystery. What's around the corner if you can't see it. Yeah, exactly. But that only works if you have a lot of space to play with. It doesn't work when you need a functional space as well. Yeah. But so that's really like, so again, that's really where habits come from is that, and often habits are formed in the, in the pursuit of a goal. Right. So again, go back to the shoe tying thing or putting your shoes on, right? Putting your shoes on to leave the house is the goal, right? You need to have your shoes to go out and do stuff. So your brain starts to just develop this pathway to do, to achieve that goal without having to really think about it. So there's sometimes a little bit of a different, so the behavioral patterns get associated with the certain cues that we're doing, right? I'm leaving the house, so I need to put my shoes on. So I put my left foot, my left shoe on first, then I put my right shoe on first, then I tie my left shoe, then I tie my right shoe. And I always do the same pattern for tying my shoes. And then like, I check for my important things. I pat the pocket the keys always are, I pat the pocket the wallet always is, and I leave. Exactly. Now, sometimes we, sometimes there's differences between like what is routine and what is habit. So a routine does also involve these repetitive behaviors, but they're not necessarily with the same goal level impulse that Mm. underlies them. Whereas a habit is more driven by impulse. So a good example is this is where we start to get more into kind of the bad habit stuff. A lot of people who smoke, smoke cigarettes, will develop the habit of wanting to have a cigarette after a meal. Ah, yes. And it will become an ingrained impulse to have that cigarette. So either the meal won't feel complete or their like addiction have like the addiction elements of smoking tobacco will really play on them until they have that smoke after dinner. And that's the impulse of it. It's again, this reward center, um, right? It's sort of the same thing as having dessert is, you know, that's like a lot of people, what a lot of people would equivalent ha- um, having a smoke after dinner to. And so... that's really where so because even though smoking is yes chemically addictive and there's a a chemical that is driving your impulse to want to do that it is ultimately a habit right is that like you are if you wake up first thing in the morning and have a cigarette with your coffee right a lot of smokers wake up and the first thing they do is have a cigarette and it's not so much just because of the your body needs a kick of nicotine but also because you have created this impulse to elicit this behavior I think the the idea of the social smoker really highlights this Mm -hmm. because you have someone who says like, oh, I don't smoke. I only smoke with friends. But then if they're out with those friends and they're trying to stop smoking, they're going to have this this urge because they have formed a habit where if I go outside with my friends, I'm going to have a smoke with them. Yeah. Which is so it's not a routine, but it is a habit that they formed. Absolutely. So why is it so hard to break habits? Because it's in our brains, man. Exactly. It's because (laughs) the habit is unconscious behavior, like a true habit. It's something just like we were talking about with the, you couldn't immediately recall which sock you put on first. I'm pretty sure it's left, but now I have to, I'm going to try to remember for tomorrow morning. Well, and (laughs) you may even change your behavior because you'll be aware of it. Now that I'm observing it. Exactly. But try to kind of be like consciously unconscious of it when you go to do it. Do it automatically. Yeah, you have to think about thinking about it halfway through doing it. Exactly. And this is the (laughs) crux of why it becomes so difficult to break habits. You know, we'll talk about making habits in a bit, but breaking habits is often like, is a very, very difficult thing because we are having to become once again conscious of something that's become unconscious. So again, if you really have this craving to have a cigarette after dinner and you're trying to quit smoking, you have to become conscious of your desire to have a cigarette after, or that immediate impulse to do certain things, that oral fixation, whatever it might be, to have that cigarette in order to combat the need to do it. Yeah. 
And often what I found with breaking certain types of habits is that it, it becomes really difficult because it slows your life down. Yeah. So when you're using things to pass time or to, you know, kind of self-soothe or placate yourself. Yeah. Like after I check my emails at work, I'm going to go on YouTube. Or yeah, or I'm going to have a coffee or whatever it might yeah. be, right? When you're trying to break those habits, you're now conscious of something that you would have done unconsciously. Your brain would have just gone on autopilot, achieved for you automatically. Mm -hmm. Now you're being conscious of it, which means you're now conscious of all of that little bit of increment of time, more conscious than you yeah. ever would have been if you just continued to do the habit. Yeah, you're so conscious that you're not getting the thing you want. Exactly. You're like fixated on that. I, I cannot have this thing. I cannot have this thing. Yeah, exactly. So that's why it becomes very, very difficult. When we're building new hab habits and trying to build good habits in particular, like we were talking about with resolutions, you want to try to build those little small rewards yep. that are built into when you yep. do this activity. If you take one baby step every day for a whole year, at the end of the year, you've <laughs> taken 365-ish baby steps, Yeah, which is way farther than if you just said, I want to take 365 steps. And yep. then you might not ever get there because you'll be like, oh, I haven't done them. I'll do 20 at once. And then you don't do it. And then so, yeah, small incremental change is much more manageable for our brains and ourselves compared to those that one big change. And and even to the point where I, w I listened to this very interesting TED talk around building habits. And it, they talked about the guy was talking about the fact that like and he was a researcher that one of the things you want to do is not only create these like small rewards and small repeatable tasks, but you want to link your small, repeatable, good habit task that you're trying to accomplish, whether it be like, so good, good examples are like flossing your teeth or certain workout things like you're going to do 10 push-ups every time you go to the bathroom was the example you used in the lecture a lot. And this idea that like, well, you're going to go to the bathroom at some point during the day, probably three or four, five or six times during the day, depending on your constitution, really. And if you, every time you wash your hands, do 10 push-ups, you know, you're going, you're going, it's, you're tying it to something that is going to happen throughout the day. It yeah. is something that takes maybe less than a minute yeah. to do 10 push-ups, right? Depending on your physical fitness. And Depending again on your constitution, roll for constitution. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so you're going to be able to do this thing. It's going to be super repeatable. It's not going to be hard to achieve. And you're tying it to something that is everyday and mundane and you have to do rather than saying, well, I'm going to go to the gym every day for an hour, you know, after work when things are going to happen, things are going to get in the way, right? And it's not to say that that it's not good to ultimately kind of move into something like that, where you're creating more of a regimen, right? Where you're going to do this thing every day, and this is going to be your pattern. But to start with these little things that are like linked to everyday ordinary things, right? That's a really good tip. Yeah, and it was, it was one I was like, kind of watching, and I was like, oh, that really makes like a lot of sense. And there's so many little things that you can apply to that, right? Like, even like after every meal, I'm going to floss my teeth or whatever, right? Like I know that that one seems a bit, maybe a bit more daunting, but again, it's this small, a small task, whatever it might be. Or like, as soon as I finish my meal, I'm going to go wash the dish. I'm always going to exactly. be eating and I will always finish eating. So then if you have a hard time getting your dishes done, be like, all right, I'm done eating. I've relaxed for five minutes. I'm going to go and I'm going to wash the dish right now. So it's done. Exactly. Ultimately though, what it will always take to build a good habit is time. Time. Building and breaking habits takes time. You'll hear all sorts of different numbers thrown around. Obviously, it really depends on the person. It depends on the reward system you've set up for yourself. It depends on the intensity of the habit, yeah. all these different things. But a some of the research has really cited 66 days for building pro-health habits. Another, an anecdotal one I've always heard around a particular habit to break is that it usually takes about 21 days to quit smoking. 
to really get over the hump. Now, some some people will say that the day three is a big hump as well. Uh, there's a lot of conversation around this in like um, particularly smoking cessation conversations is like three days is usually a difficult point for people. And then 21 days. Um, I've heard 21 days thrown around to build or break habits, 21 days to quit smoking, but 66 days for pro health habits was what was one of the ones that came up in the research for this. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. So it's a little bit longer than you would think. Obviously people kind of go, Oh my God, 66 days. It's so long, but that's kind of the point, yeah. right? I mean, that's two months. You're, and you're resetting neural pathways. Like this is not going to happen overnight. You have to be diligent. Take your baby steps. Ex exactly. Right. And so that's why it's good to kind of have these things that are just like small and repeatable rather than these big things that are hard to achieve when other things get in the way. And we humans, we're not really like, there are people who are big picture thinkers, but for the most part, we are not like, we can't grasp big numbers easily. Right. Like if I say like, imagine a million golf balls. Like, do you even have a container? Some people think spatially, but like, do you even have a container? Do you even know what that would be? But if it's like, imagine one golf ball and think about the dimples on it. Like, yeah. we're, we're a lot better at focusing in on a detail and focusing on one small thing than thinking of big picture stuff. So like, work with your brain. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Uh, as an interesting little part of this conversation to the habit stuff. Uh, so there's in the, at the University of Southern California, there's a habit lab. So it's a huh. research facility that's based around habit a lot of the psychologies <laughs> of habits, right? Uh, and there's a doc, Dr. Wendy Wood did a study where they estimated that 43% of the activities that participants were engaging in in a, in a particular day were done habitually while they thought of something else. I absolutely buy that. Yeah. So almost, and it makes sense, right? Because there are so many things. It's, it's like, you know, people kind of tend to talk about like, and there's lots of reasons for this, but they tend to talk about how their lives speed up as they get older. Yeah. The more routine your life is, the faster time goes, right? If you work your nine to five and you go home, you cook dinner and then you watch TV every day, your days are going to start to go really quick. Yeah. You know, weeks are going to go by, months are going to go by because so much of what you're doing is rote. It's routine mm -hmm. and you're not thinking about it. And it's the same sort of thing when you're breaking that habit you're slowing your life down so much that your perception of time is changing so much that it can actually make it really difficult to quit some of those things. Yeah. I always think of like walking to school and there are definitely times like in high school and university, like you get home and it's like, I don't remember the walk because your, your feet know the path. Nothing happened on the walk that was different than any other day. So you might be like listening to something fun or whatever, but you get home and it's like, I don't remember the last 20 minutes. Like, <laughs> you know, what's really terrifying that I've had happen to me that happens on drives. I've had it happen. I on know drives. it's so scary because you're like, you're doing your commute all the time. Um, we're kind of like where, you know, where we live, we're fortunate to have like really well-developed roads and stuff with very like, a wide lot of potholes. <laughs> yeah. Very wide roads, not a lot of potholes. The traffic, traffic is very systematic here, even though people tend to drive like idiots anyway, it but it happens everywhere. And it happens everywhere. Absolutely. Right. Um, but yeah, I've had moments where I'd be like on my commute to work and I'll get to work and I'll be like, I don't really remember the last four sets of lights. Yeah. And then you're like, that's not good. Yeah, like, this they is were very... all green, right? <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And you know that they were because your brain would have told you differently. But like, yeah, sometimes you start thinking about something else and it's something you do every day. It's pretty easy to lose track. So yeah. we get in our little, in our little, uh, we get in our little like rut. Not rut as a bad thing, but rut being like, oh, I'm on this path and I'm not going to go anywhere but this path. And you just have to hope that the universe isn't throwing something uh, to sideswipe you. Yeah. So let's talk about, so that's a little bit of some of like the psychology of habits, some tips yes. for making or breaking habits, just little things you can do. But what what is the underlying sort of brain chemistry, the neuroscience? Why, why does our brain have it? Like, you know, we know why we create them. 
but like what is happening in our brain when it's engaging in a habit? Uh, yes, into some neuroscience and things. So like Davis was saying, when we're young, our brain branches out a lot. We have our neurons with their dendrites that look like little trees or like roots, and they spread out everywhere. But then uh, it's actually called pruning mm -hmm. of your... Neural know, pathways. Neural pathways, yeah. Yep. So they, they start to get pruned down. Cause it's like, oh, okay, like when I do this activity, uh, I don't need to... I don't need to worry about that avenue because it happened once and it's never happened again. So we'll forget about how to do that. And then we'll forget about how to do this one. We're just going to, we're going to keep making this one pathway stronger and stronger. We're going to prune off all the excess. We're going to make our little rut in there. Right. Um, and then a, a, it's called like a habit loop. When we have a habit, it's a habit loop. So there are three things that happen when a habit is occurring. So there's a cue or a trigger. This tells your brain to go into automatic mode and let the behavior happen. Mm -hmm. This is like, I get out of bed and I go to put on my socks. The cue is, I woke up yeah. <laughs> and it's time to change my socks. Uh, and then the routine is the behavior itself, what we think about when we think about habits. So this is the moment where you are like, okay, it's time to, I guess the sock one doesn't work as well for, for this habit. Well, it is because um, the routine of the sock is the putting on the that's sock. That's true. It's putting on the sock. Yeah. So your habit is... I put socks on. <laughs> I got a sock problem. I do have a bit of a sock problem. I actually had to ask people to not buy me socks for Christmas because I have a whole drawer. I really love funky socks. And fun fact, as an aside, I always try to wear socks that match our our topic mm. in some way. So, Davis, what's on my socks today? You're wearing donut socks. Yeah, because there's a lot of resolutions about eating better. Oh. Haha. <laughs> they're, they're, yeah. they're almost always a stretch, except for the space episodes. Yeah, because yeah, <laughs> there's space, space stuff. Um, so, yeah. So, we have step one is the cue or the trigger. Step two is the routine. And step three is the reward. So this is something your brain likes that help it remember the habit loop. So for the sock example, it's like, ah, now my feet are warm. Or like, yeah. ah, now I have socks that match the rest of my outfit and I can go on with my day feeling satisfied yeah. that my socks are okay. So <clears throat> we have these three things. The cue or the trigger leads into the routine, which gives us a reward. And uh, the habit-making uh, behaviors are linked to uh, the part of the brain called the basal ganglia, which also plays a key role in the development of emotions, memories, and pattern recognition. So we always think about like the decisions that we make are our prefrontal cortex, right? Just the front of our brain. I'm tapping my forehead. I realize you can't see me. Uh, but yeah, like right behind your forehead is your prefrontal cortex. The and part of our brain that's a little bit like bigger compared to a lot of the animals. Yes. This is why we are capable of that like deeper thought and analytical thought compared to a lot of animal creatures. Um, but as soon as behavior becomes automatic, the decision-making part of your brain, that prefrontal cortex kind of goes into sleep mode. It like, it goes like, ah, all right, this is already happening. We got this. I'm going to not actively think about this because the prefrontal cortex is very energy demanding. It takes a lot of energy to run it. So if we don't have to run it for putting socks on, we're not going to run it for putting socks on. I guess I do run it every day for putting socks on because I... You're making a decision about I what to wear. I make a decision yeah. about socks every day. But, but the <laughs> habit of making that habit. decision may also be somewhat automated. It's right? true. If I don't make that decision, it feels weird. And I don't get my reward. Yeah. And the criteria <laughs> that you're using to make that decision has also become really ingrained. It has. Right? So you may... So yeah. But again, all in the pursuit of your brain being more efficient. Yes. Um, and then there's another uh, area of the, the brain that has been cued in as part of this that people have figured out so there's a study that uh was done uh i believe maybe was mit on, on rats it was on rats well, was um experiment with so rats. there's 
they call it a maze, but it was just like a T shape. <laughs> so they let them down at the bottom of the T and uh, there would be a queue. And if they went left on the queue, they would get a treat. I think it was chocolate milk. Uh, and so they formed a habit to go left. When they got put in the maze, they're like, ah, if I go down here and I go left, I will get chocolate milk, delicious. Um, and then the scientists inhibited the infralimbic cortex, a part of your brain, I don't remember where it is, but the infralimbic cortex using optogenetics. This is a very cool thing. Uh, this is a technique that allows researchers to inhibit specific cells with light. So the researchers turned off the IL, infralimbic, IL cortex for several cortex activities for several seconds as the rats approached the point in the maze where they had to decide which way to turn. And when they did this, they inhibited the IL cortex, the rats broke their habit. They started going right. And then they developed a new habit to go right. Scientists inhibited the IL cortex again. And then the rats returned to their previous going left habit. So it was like, once they had, they were going left, that was inhibited. So they started going right. And then when they started going left again, they realized that the, uh, the first habit was still underneath there. It like had never gone away. Just a new habit had formed on top of it, mm. which is also a very important thing for habit forming is that like, Developing a new habit is kind of the best way to break an old habit, yeah. as opposed to just trying to stop doing the thing, like replace the thing with a new thing. It's often why you see a lot of people who quit smoking, um, they end up snacking a lot. A lot of yeah. people that quit smoking put on weight. One, because smoking is an appetite suppressor, yeah. but also because you have this this um, oral fixation where you're, you can't, you, yeah. the I action of constantly taking your hand from a position and bringing it to your mouth, it works really well if you're eating like corn nuts or something. Yeah. yeah. And this is why vapes were invented, right? One yes. of the big reasons. I have a lot of opinions about that. But <laughs> we'll I'll probably do them. a whole episode on it at yep, some point. Maybe. Yep. Um, but yeah, so we've got the IL part of your brain as well. Now, optogenetics is really cool, but it's a little too invasive to do with humans because they got to... <laughs> and don't they have to, in, they have to like insert genes to do optogenetics, don't they? Uh, I don't know if they have to do that. It says allows researchers to inhibit specific cells with light. Mm. So I think they might just have to have your brain open which is very invasive with humans Yeah. to get light onto your brain. Um, but it is genetic, so there could definitely be a genetic component, but maybe one day medical science moves at the speed of light, man. Yeah, I thought it was something along the lines of where you're, like, you're inserting the gene into the organism so that when you produce this light effect, it turns that gene, like it turns all oh, of the possibly. genes that are expressed by that on or off or the whole like structure on or off. I think that's kind of where it comes from. That's where the genetics part comes from, I think, okay. but I would have to double check. Yeah, we could look into that for next yeah, time. for sure. Cool. Um, and then with this, so we have our like cue or a cue, our routine and our reward. Um, this also comes in with the idea of chunking. So this, I forget what we were talking about earlier in the podcast, but we mentioned something that really feels like this. So chunking, like a chunk of stuff is a complex set of movements that amount to one routine action that we perform unconsciously. So I might liken this to getting ready in the morning, mm. right? Or like packing your lunch. You have a number of things you have to do but it's all part of one routine now. It's all part of one habit that's built in. So I would think about, I, I, for me, one of the things that really comes to mind is because one of the things I was really struggled with when I was playing a lot of music was memorizing music. And memorize, one of the tricks that my teacher always tried to get me to do was essentially chunking, where you're essentially, you're taking, 
you know, okay, play these eight bars, memorize these eight bars, and then play the next eight bars, memorize those eight bars, and then understand the transition from one set of eight bars to the next set of eight bars. Oh, yeah. So you have, like, the beginning and the end you kind of know. Exactly. And a lot of music, though, has, like, especially classical and fiddle music of, of all, all music in general has a lot of repetition. It's one of the yeah. structures that it's kind of based on. And that would always be my issue memorizing, would be that I could memorize chunks of music, but at times, because the, the chunks would end similarly, or yeah. there'd be repetition of chunks. I would have a hard time remembering, okay, well, it's three chunks and then the next section. Or it's like, oh, well, we played the whole section now and now we're repeating it once and then we're going to the next one. Or I'd even play like a completely different song because it would be sort of different. Yeah. And it was just one of those things in my brain always had a really hard time really kind of piecing together. I get that. As a theater performer, if I'm like running lines in a show and I get, and there's lines that are similar to each other, sometimes you end up on the wrong track. Yeah. And then you're like, I'm saying the wrong lines for this part, but the line was really similar to the other line. Yeah. So yeah, so this is the that chunking idea. So this is also like a uh, book, like a, a bookend. Yep. Or like, what do you call it? I, I would call a it a bookend book book yeah, book on end. like a bookshelf. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> you, you get really fancy ones. They just hold the books together, keep yes. them standing up. I've never had that problem. If you don't have, have a full shelf. Books. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so there's... If you're there's... putting them on like a mantle or something, it's nice to have bookends because yes. then there is no end to the shelf. That's very true. You need yeah. to make one. Um, but yeah, so there's new research suggesting that some brain cells are tasked with bookending the chunks that correspond to habitual actions. Um, and there's evidence uh, that the striatum, a region of the brain... The blah, blah, a region of the brain previously associated with decision-making also plays an important role in acquiring habits. Um... This is a, yeah, so there's a part of the brain. Researchers uh, were working on this with mice and they noticed that patterns of signals transmitted between neurons in the striatum shifted as the animals were taught a new sequence of actions, which then evolved into a habit. Um, at the beginning of the learning process, the neurons in the mice striata, plural, uh, emitted a continuous string of signals, right? So they're doing a new thing. So everything is getting, their brain is active in every moment, right? It's like, Ping, 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 ping. Every cell along that route is firing. Yes, it's like, we're learning a new thing. We're learning a new thing. Here's lots of new information. Um, but then as the mice's actions started to consolidate into habitual movements, the neurons fired their distinctive signals only at the beginning and end of the task performed. So instead of the entire way along, like the entire way along of, I don't know, pushing, maybe, I don't know what the mice had to do, but like, let's say they had to push a blue button, a red button, and a yellow button. They had to go blue, red, yellow, blue, red, yellow. When they're learning it, their neurons would be firing the striata the entire time, right? At each step. At every single step. But once they figured it out, it would only fire at the beginning, blue, red, yellow, red, blue, red, yellow, and at the end they would fire again. So you get this, like, book ending of it. Uh, and there was another experiment with rats that saw this book ending again in chunks of brain. And then there is evidence now that there are interneurons which are groups of inhibitory brain cells in the striatum that form in complement in complement to uh, the ones that fire that form the habit. These are activated in the time where the rats were in the middle of performing their learn sequence. So they teach the rats a new thing. They notice that the, the striata are not firing all along, right? Just at the beginning and the end. But then there are interneurons now that are the is inhibitory ones. And the idea is that these could possibly be preventing the principal neurons from initiating another routine until the current one was finished. So instead of interrupting this pattern that was going, it's like, okay, we are into autopilot for this time. You cannot interrupt the program while autopilot is running. You must wait for the program to end before initiating the next mm -hmm. program, which is pretty cool that our brains do that stuff too. Yeah. I mean, to different effectiveness. Like I know that 
it can sometimes be very difficult for me to focus on one task when I'm in the middle of it. My brain just wants to think of the 8,000 other things I have to do. <laughs> the idea of like, yes, you are on this path, so you cannot finish, like, you cannot do B until you finish A. Excellent. There you go. Some neuroscience for you. Some neuroscience. So to put the, the bow on the topic of habits, we'll sum, uh, summarize some of the tips to form or break habits, right? So once you kind of want to find ways to lower your stress level, particularly for things that are bad habits that are triggered by stress, right? I'm going to keep coming back to the smoking example because it's the easiest one. Eating also works for this one. Yeah, exactly. Look, and eating can be an addiction as well. But a lot of smokers or overeaters, they're using that to cope with stresses in their day-to-day life, right? Oh, I had a stressful meeting at work. I'm going to go outside and have a cigarette. Um, you want to become aware of them. This is off, often the most difficult part is to become conscious of unconscious behavior. Or things like, like I feel like uh, smoking is a, because you have to like go outside for that one a lot of time, but something like skin picking. Yep. Or snacking. Or, or chewing on your nails. Yeah. 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 Right. A lot because a lot of people will do stuff like that without thinking about it yeah. when they're stressed, uh, especially. Do you want to avoid the cues of the negative habits? So like Sarah said, right, if you're a social smoker, um, you don't want to go out with your friends onto the patio when they're having a smoke break because it will not be good for you quitting smoking. You're putting yourself in an environment where you're at higher risk. Yes. Um, like we said with the New Year's resolutions, a support system, accountability is very good. Yes. Um, and this mm-hmm. ties in with like, like... Alcoholics Anonymous, yep. right? Part of the reason it's successful is you now have people you are accountable to. Yep. You want to replace old habits with new habits, like we were kind of discussing, right? Because your brain still wants to use those pathways, but you want to alter why it's using them or what it's using them to do, yeah. what the goal is. Yeah. Like instead of going out to a bar to get a drink, you go to an AA meeting. You're still leaving the house. You're still meeting a group of people. The, the habit is similar enough that you can like transfer over you, you always want to watch dependence in anything, but we're humans, we form it. Yep. So you're switching your habit to something that is healthier. Yeah. And like we said, right, those small consistent changes that are easily repeatable and tied to something mundane, like yes. doing 10 push-ups after using the washroom. Which is not yep. one that I'd heard. And like, I feel like if I did 10 push-ups, I would want to wash my hands again because I've just touched the floor. But if you had a big enough bathroom, I guess you could do it before. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. Before or whatever, right? Yeah. And so ultimately, you know... It, it's never too late or too early to learn to break or make a habit, Yeah. right? Our brains are malleable throughout our entire lives. You can teach an old dog new tricks. Mm-hmm. Yes, as we get older, certain things do become more difficult. Our brains are a little less plastic. It's harder to make certain types of changes. But ultimately, our brain is this structure that constantly has the ability to change and learn new things. Yeah, it's like think about the, the more you do a habit, the deeper the rut gets, right? Like if you yep. think about water running down like a field and creating a rill, like a little stream. And then the more you let it go, the deeper it'll get, but it doesn't mean you can't divert it and fill in where it was and create a new stream. Like you can always do that. It might just, it gets harder as you go, but you can always change it. Yeah. And I always remember there's like a, there's a story from the Berenstein Bears. You know, you used to read those books. I have so many at home. (laughs) Exactly. And that was literally one of them was they were talking about habits and they're using a wheelbarrow to go up and down like a dirt path. And they say, the more that you do something, habit, good or bad, the deeper this rut is going to be and the harder it's going to be to pull yourself out of that rut. But it's, it's never impossible. It just yeah. takes more and more effort. And right? sometimes you might just need some friends to help you lift that wheelbarrow, man. Exactly. Um, right. Lots of different ways to apply that. One more thing that I found that was actually a surprise for me was going on vacation mm. can actually help because you are all of a sudden now in a new environment. So you don't have a lot of your old cues and triggers. Yeah. Right. So if you go on vacation, like Davis was just on vacation. So if he had had a bad habit, he wanted to break that was tied to like, I don't know, his kitchen or his house or something. 
that's a good time to do it because you're all of a sudden away. You can become aware that you're not doing those things and kind of yeah. move on from there. Like if you go through mm-hmm. a big change, like one of them, uh, a fact I came across was the biggest moment of flexibility in our shopping habits is when we have a child. Cause all of your older teens go out the window and suddenly a marketer can come in and sell you new things. Uh, as someone who has a lot of friends who have recently had babies, I would be very curious to know if you've experienced this at all. If you found yourself suddenly buying different stuff because you were, all of your habits were thrown in the air. So you could just form a bunch of new habits. Yeah. I wonder how much of that is clouded though, by the fact that like when you have a kid, you do have to go and buy a bunch of new stuff. And you're sleep deprived. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I know. I always find that one. I always take that one with a bit of caution because I think sometimes what happens is it's, it's very similar. um, Unfortunately, when people go to rehab, that uh, a lot of times that people go to very intensive rehabs that are like kind of all encompassing, like basically where you're like living at the rehab facility oh, yeah. for a period of time, you're living, you, you, it's great environment to like break some of these very serious habits. But the problem is, is that you're living in an environment that is not real life. Yeah. And when you return to real life, all of those triggers are still going to be present and you haven't necessarily, it's not to say that rehab doesn't work. And rehab is one of those things where often people need to go back to rehab. They need to engage yeah. in it multiple times to process, right? Um, just like anything. But often what happens is you come back into your regular life. You've only learned how to cope, to not cope with the same things using drugs or whatever you're going to rehab for in an environment that's what I would like, is very sterile, yeah. right? Sterilized of and these types of triggers. Safe. And safe. And and you're monitored. And you're in a community where everyone is experiencing the same thing. Yeah. Then you go back into the real world and it's hard, you know, sometimes you haven't actually gained the tools that you need to deal with the triggers of everyday life. You just learned how to break a habit in a special environment. And I find that that's very true for vacation stuff too. You're right. If you have really strictly set things that you're like, I want to make a change in this habit this year or whatever it might be. And I'm going to use this vacation to help me reset myself. That's a good thing, but you have to be, I find you actually have to be even more conscious of breaking the habit when you come back than that small incremental change of trying to break a habit in your normal environment because you're now being overwhelmed with your triggers again and it's very easy to relapse or slip back into your old habits. Very fair. So there's one more thing that I wanted to talk about with habits because I thought it was kind of interesting and just like kind of one of those quirky sort of pseudoscience things to kind of talk about to kind of round this up. When I saw this in the uh, show flow, I was very excited. Yes. So (laughs) I wanted to talk a little bit about I'm using the the catch-all term for this section of brainwashing. Brainwashing. Hacking your brain. But I wanted to specifically talk about hypnosis and mind control. Two things that we, I think, in the cultural zeitgeist are super prevalent and that do have some sort of basis in science or, or at the very minimum pseudoscience and kind of talk about those. So I don't know if you've ever known anyone that's done hypnosis therapy. No. To help them with stuff. I have known people that have undergone hypnosis therapy. I've known people who have found hypnosis therapy really work for them cool. for certain things. It's not a magic pill, yeah. right? People in medicine are often always, patients particularly are often looking for like the magic pill. Fix my back pain. Give me this pill. Tell me to do one thing. Give me a surgery, right? They want those types of things. It's not really how medicine works. Okay. Usually it's, again, habit changes, small incremental things. You have to change your the way you sit, you have to do different exercises, all these types of things, right? It's like with the diet. Everyone's like, I want the magic diet. And you're like, the magic diet doesn't exist. You need to make a long-term health Lifestyle diet change. change. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, right? <laughs> so, but I have known people for whom hypnosis has created, you know, changes to their psyche, allowed them to break certain habits or get over fears and things like that. Like rehab, like it's enough of a stopgap. Yep. 
and it teach and again it's it's there there's some science behind like that it's kind of rewiring your brain or it's helping affect your neuroplasticity so there are two there's hypnosis is actually a huge area in of interest in neuroscience studies it's basically been looked at pretty severely since like the 1930s because like if you've ever seen a hypnosis stage show you know that to a certain extent hypnosis is real people can be hypnotized and do weird stuff when they're hypnotized or under the influence of hypnosis um obviously there's like a limit to it um you know even a lot of hypnosis hypnotists will say that like you still even if you have someone under the influence of hypnosis you still can't really get them to do anything that they wouldn't do that they would completely not want to do or like put themselves like really at risk exactly because the brain is still pretty active it still knows to protect itself and there's like limits to how much influence you can exert really exert on a person because that's really what it is right like you're if you're in hypnosis you are under the influence exactly so there's two major types of study in neuroscience for hypnosis there's intrinsic study of hypnosis which is trying to understand the nature of hypnosis and hypnotic suggestion why does it happen what is it what is hypnosis what is it affecting in your brain and those sorts of things right like the actual mechanism of how are people hypnotized what happens to your brain when it's hypnotized why can we hypnotically suggest certain phenomena to occur right why can i why can i hypnotize someone to help them quit smoking that's sort of this intrinsic understanding like why does hypnosis work then there's the instrumentally focused which is more about the selective use of experimental and clinically informed suggestions again the example of i'm going to use hypnosis to help someone quit smoking and their effect on normal and abnormal psychology so less so of why can you be hypnotized but more of if i hypnotize you how is that affecting your brain to result in this end result that we're seeing? Why is it that we see this observable change? What is it affecting about your psychology or about your neuroplasticity? The two major arms. So um, a lot of times this study, this type of study is very difficult. A lot of neuroscience study and psychology is very difficult because it's all very subjective. And you can't just open up people's brains very often. And even if you could open up people's brains and just stick a bunch of electrodes in and watch (laughs) stuff, interpreting, right, even when we put people in big brain scan machines and do certain tests on them, you've won, you've put them in a weird, alien, and stressful environment. If, If you've ever gotten an MRI, it is not a comfortable experience. And... You are, so you're putting them in in a different environment than normal life. You're taking them out of a lot of the regular variables and you are, sometimes it's very difficult to understand what it is you're looking at, right? They usually need like, we had had to brain scan hundreds of people to be like, ah, yes. So this is like, this area is lighting up for most of them. So this area must have something to do with it. And even like the really simple stuff that we take it, we take for granted today, right? That we can identify that this region of the brain is the prefrontal cortex. This is the occipital lobe yeah. that's in charge of your vision. It took a long time, a lot of brain imaging to actually understand that this is the parts of the brain that are responsible for this. And even to the point where we still don't understand a lot of the brain, right? Yeah. You know, there's those classic case studies of people that have gotten rods right through the center of their brain. Phineas Gage. It Exactly, and behave. You took a diff- level one psych course. <laughs> exactly, and and behave differently. So, and there's so much that we don't understand. Or people that have severe traumatic injuries when they're very young and lose function in one half of their body, and then can be trained to have the other side of their brain that's still properly functioning take over all executive function and they regain control of their limbs. That's wild. I don't know about that. Yeah, it's crazy, <laughs> right? So there's there's tons of stuff like this. It's actually really common post stroke 
that people can, it's very hard at sometimes to recover from a stroke, for sure. Certain severities of stroke, it's impossible to recover from for most intensive purposes. But a lot of times you can teach the brain, especially when the damage is in the brain, to use other structures in the brain to achieve the same thing. So it's like the handedness thing you said. There's people that sometimes will lose the function of that part of the brain that normally controls their handedness, and they can teach the other side of the brain to take over for the damaged part of the brain. Cool. Very interesting. But what's difficult about hypnosis study in general is that it's basically based off qualitative indicators. So it's people that are saying like, this is how hypnotized I felt, yeah. right? How deeply I felt into my subconscious. And it usually involves to do this type of study, you have to find hypnotically suggestible people. So there's some really interesting science that's basically been looked at since the 1930s around, are certain people with certain characteristics more likely to be hypnotizable? right? Mm. Because there is science that shows that some people are more hypnotizable than others. Yeah. I heard that it was like, if you are more of an open person, you might be more susceptible. Mm -hmm. And they'll say stuff like that, but the science has sort of to this point shown that there's not any distinct personality traits that are linked to hypnotizability with a huh. really clear like um, correlation and causation specifically, right? There is sort of stuff where they've sort of found that there's proposed links to more creative people, mm -hmm. self-belief in hypnosis as being indicators of people that are more hypnotizable. You know, that suggestibility, their level of empathy, how prone you are to fantasy, those sorts oh, of things okay. tend to sometimes make people more hypnotizable or are seen in people who are more hypnotizable, have been demonstrated to be more likely to be hypnotized. But there's not really any exact causal link where it's like, oh, well, if you're if you have narcissistic personality disorder, you can't be hypnotized. Right. It, there's nothing really to say stuff like that necessarily. Huh. But there is evidence to show a neural basis of hypnosis, that there is change in the brain when you are being hypnotized. Whoa. So I kind of have to read this one a bit more directly because it gets a little complex. But it's a shift towards right hemisphere processing. So. One thing important to remember about right versus left brain is that your right brain is actually controlling a lot of your left side functionality. Yes. So people that are left-handed often to have higher right brain functionality. That's why they tend to be a bit more creative, artistic, those sorts of things, because that's more governed by the right hand of the brain side of the brain. Left side of the brain is more governed, is more your analytics and things like that. Most people are not really, the whole right brain, left brain thing is kind of a falsehood. Yeah. Most people are pretty centralized, but typically default more to one side or the other. And then again, it comes a lot with your handedness because we mostly develop a, a, a strong hand. But there's a shift towards right hemisphere processing in the hypnosis of highly suggestible participants. Again, big grain of salt because you kind of have to look at people that can be hypnotized because yeah. the people that can't be hypnotized aren't really giving you anything. They're going to mess with your study, man. Exactly. <laughs> so what happens is that areas in the frontal... Uh, uh, cortical region, which is like the corpus callosum, which is mediates your changes in attention, will shift from your left brain, your left hemisphere to your right hemisphere. And it indicates that there's some frontal executive systems, right? Again, those prefrontal cortex things, those higher functioning things that we do that a lot of animals don't do that are involved in hypnosis. And these executive functions are things that are, it's the cognitive controls of our behavior. So they've seen these like weird shifts in people's brains. So, Wild. yeah, I didn't go too much deeper into the hypnosis stuff than that, but I find it very interesting, right, that, like, I think hypnosis, you think about the stage show hypnosis, yeah. right, someone, oh, act like a chicken, mark, 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 Or, mark. like, Manchurian Candidate. Yeah, exactly, right? And it's interesting to see that there is 
one, that it's of particular interest to researchers, and two, that there is a lot of evidence to show that there is something happening when you hypnotize someone, but it's a very difficult thing, a difficult thing to study, and the studies are almost always, you, you can get results, but they're always going to be, I hesitate to use the word flawed, it's the only word that's coming into my brain, but like, they're flawed in the same way that like, if you take, if you take a bunch of um, plants and insects out of their natural environment and study them in the lab, your your results about their behavior are going to be somewhat flawed because you could have removed things from the environment that are dictating the behavior. Yeah. And what you're observing is not actual natural behavior. Yeah. Right. So it's the same. There are caveats mm -hmm. to what you're researching. Yeah. So I really want to like link this into to actual brainwashing because it's whole, it's a it's a very different thing. It, it links in in some ways, but brainwashing could be and like cults and all of this could mm -hmm. be its own episode and i would love to do one on that so maybe maybe soon we'll talk about that stuff exactly right and and even to, to kind of preview it a little bit right is that a lot of times where we talk about mind control or you know infamous examples like mk ultra and stuff like that it often and even to the point where this is something that's very true about a lot of military basic training is about breaking someone's psyche down so that you can rebuild them and mold them into what you need to do, right? Where basically most people are taught their whole lives that, for example, if you're joining the military, right, you're taught your whole life killing is wrong. But if you become a soldier, you essentially have to have that impulse beaten out of you, taken away from you so that you can act. So if, you know, when you're put into a war situation and you are forced to potentially kill another human being, that you're not going to subject yourself to those same impulses that your whole life you're kind of told not to do, right? Yeah. Instead, you will defer to the judgment of your superior and be obedient. Exactly. And in and soldiers particularly, like obviously in the military, chain of command is a big thing. Yeah. And that's why they do it, right? That they want to break you. And things with MK Ultra and stuff, classically, these experiments were huge subjections to psychedelic drugs, electroshock therapy, things to destroy. And they were typically done on people that were already isolated individuals, were isolated from their peers for a variety of different reasons. And they were already vulnerable to having their basically like psychic pathway, their, their psychological pathways hacked. Yeah. And they could be kind of beaten down, reduced to their sort of lowest state, and then built back up in a way for whomever wanted to build them up. To, to do whatever they wanted to do. Very scary stuff when you start introducing like high levels of psychedelics because those really, they can change your brain and that's why you see there's uh, research is coming out again. It all got demonized, but it's starting to come out again of like MDMA to help people with PTSD and psilocybin to help people facing death and these sorts of things because it can help adjust your neural pathways but you got to do it really safely because they're very very powerful things so if you start giving someone a whole bunch of them you can just completely destroy their sense of self exactly and it's even been sure there's been some studies that have shown high doses of psychedelics in particular psilocybin mushrooms people that are uh, people will actually demonstrate higher levels of neuroplasticity following a large dose like following a drug trip essentially yeah. for for several months after a large mushroom trip yeah. it's quite interesting so now on to mind reading. So this isn't so much into like the habit forming and stuff like that, but I thought it kind of went with brainwashing. And it's not even really, ultimately what I ended up finding science-wise about mind reading wasn't really about mind reading. It's not really like, uh, you know, I'm a telepath and I'm reading Sarah's thoughts. There's a lot of argument to be said, even if you did have the power of mind reading, that you would never be able to interpret another person's thoughts. Yeah, because we all think so differently. Oh, I, ju I just came across this like yesterday, mm -hmm. how like, like some people think mostly in words. Some people think mostly in pictures. Other people think in like three-dimensional space. Like if I, as a fairly 
word-based thinker. Like, I can think in visuals, but, like, there's definitely times where, like, I'm trained as a director for theater, and, like, if I'm reading a play and I can see it, I've got a pretty good sense of it, and I think I can direct it. But there's been times I've read plays, and I'm like, I have no idea what set you're setting up. I don't know how this is shaped on the stage. Whereas you talk to, like, engineers and stuff, and they're like, oh, yeah, I can spin 3D models in my head. And I go, what? So if I read the mind of someone like that, I'd, my brain wouldn't know how to... It wouldn't know how to interpret it. Or yeah. one of those people looking into someone's mind that is filled with words and language, they wouldn't know how to interpret it, right? So it's very cool. Exactly. And we used to talk about this when we would do stereochemistry in, in my chemistry courses, is that there would be some of us in the class, like I used to be able to do a lot of the stereochemistry stuff in my head. I wouldn't need to make the little models to Stereochemistry, just like the, the physical st structure? Yeah. So okay. um, I don't know if you know much about like chiral molecules, right? No. But that's handedness. <laughs> oh, so right. Some, so for example, like uh, all of our amino acids, we have... Uh, L-amino acids, and it's just the d designation that was given to all of the amino acids that are in life on Earth have a particular type of stereochemistry. Is this like how DNA always spirals? Yeah, it, 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 because like... those molecules that make up DNA are have some cert certain stereochemistry. It's more about the bonding. It's, it gets very okay. complicated, but yeah, you're right. Is people that... are always like, that model of DNA is twisting the wrong way. Yeah. And so it's just handedness in chemistry, and it's really important for especially a lot of pharmacological stuff. Okay. But when you study it, it basically involves a lot of 3D manipulation of stuff. And most people end up, that's why they give, that's why so many chemistry students have a model kit. I have a model kit downstairs. Exactly. It's why they make you buy one in early university, because some of this stuff is really hard for certain people to do in their heads, but other people will just have a natural brain for it. And like, so I was probably always a bit more middle of the pack for that kind of stuff. I was pretty good at manipulating 3D objects, but it was really interesting to get to that unit and everyone kind of almost be comparing notes on how easy is it for you to visualize something. And it's like, yeah, I can create a 3D shape in my brain and rotate it and think about it in three dimensions, but I know people that are even better at stuff like that and their spatial recognition and their ability to memorize shapes and structures is like off the charts and they're going to get a hundred percent on every orgo course because they just their brain is just wired to absorb that type of information whereas yeah very linear or like literal thinkers that's me <laughs> they have a lot more problems with that kind of orgo chemistry because it's just not what their brain is wired to do it's not how they're thinking about it and in a more an example that might people have, might have come across a little more often than building chemical models is like driving like yeah. people who drive and they have the ability like they drive a big 18 wheeler or they can throw a yep your um, spatial awareness of your vehicle yeah yep. you can you can put a an rv on the back of your of your truck and you can drive and you're fine whereas other people it's like oh my gosh i'm in a new car now it's a different shape than the car i usually drive and i don't know where my corners are and i'm gonna bump into something i've even heard that there's a gender component to that that, that i have heard this i would have to really corroborate this but I, i've heard stuff that like men typically have a little bit better spatial awareness i've heard that too and and they're just better at manipulating objects in 3d space I but would love to sit here and say it's and not like that. that, but I do have very good balance and I have pretty bad spatial sense, so I, <laughs> I mean, line up with this one. <laughs> two anecdotes right there, right? But yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I am a sample size of one. Yeah. But interestingly with the mind control stuff I looked into was more brain-to-computer uh, interfaces and brain-to-brain -brain interfaces. So I'll just do these really, really quickly. But the brain-to-computer interface is something that actually has become a, quite prevalent in the last couple of years, really, especially around, we were talking a bit more about, like, stroke victims in the past. Yeah. Some people that have a stroke, they lose the ability to speak, certain control certain bodily functions and stuff like that, right? Because it's huge damage to your brain. Mm -hmm. Just recently, they did, they, sh uh, they had a guy who had a stroke, he lost the ability to speak, and they have linked him up to a brain-computer interface, and he was able to send a tweet 
entirely from his brain and his thoughts where the computer would interpret his brain signals and it would type the tweet out and it would send it. Very cool. So it's really neat. And this, this opens up all these possibilities because this is a huge barrier towards like true like mechatronic you know limb replacement and things yeah. like that right like what's one of the biggest difficult one of the most difficult things about you know giving someone a new hand how do they control the fingers on that hand how can you make it as close to an approximation as their normal hand was before their accident or they lost their hand or even for someone that's never had a hand yeah right so a lot of times some certain types of prosthetics will actually some really advanced prosthetics will actually tie into the muscles that you have remaining yeah. and you'll be using the muscles that you have in you know whatever part of your arm you have left to manipulate that your hand or if you can really master the brain computer interface to the point where you would still take some training but eventually you would just again develop new pathways in your brain that control this hand and the signals would be interpreted by a computer in the hand and they would let you use this new robotic hand exactly like your normal hand. That's so cool. So that's what's so important about these brain to computer interfaces. With you know. the, the brain to computer interface, what was uh, Stephen Hawking's setup like? Because he had a fairly sophisticated one, right? So his was not brain to computer interface, right? Was this um, the eyes? Yeah. So there's, it's a few different things that, because uh, so... Stephen Hawking had cerebral palsy mm -hmm. um, and it was degenerative and he so he basically so there were a number of different pieces of technology that were at use and this is very similar stuff that has been used in the past for for example for quadriplegics mm -hmm. so one of them is uh, some quadriplegics to move their chairs they'll have a breath tube attached oh, okay. to the chair right because they generally have motion from about the shoulders up so they can use the tube to blow air into to direct the the uh their chair where it needs to go okay right um then often they'll have i can't i don't know why the name of the technology is escaping me right now but they'll often have um essentially a special computer with um buttons to press right um because they may still have people with cerebral palsy especially will still have some level of motor functionality in their hands usually or their arms and they'll be able to press buttons that will speak for them Right. So they usually program pre-programmed with some phases or they're like actively typing certain things out and it's and then the computer is speaking. Right. And that's where we kind of get that the, the sort of the Stephen Hawking voice or that computerized voice is it's coming from this device. Um, and then, yeah, some of those computers can use your eye tracking to yeah. tell where and you blink and things like that. Right. It's like people that used to get locked in syndrome where basically you lose full control. You lose basically your ability to move, but you're still, your brain is still active. Yeah. They were really early brain computer interfaces were kind of like blink once for yes, blink twice for no kind of stuff. Yeah. Where it was like, okay, if you're thinking no, the computer will read out a single input. If you're thinking yes, the computer will read out two inputs, like two flashes or something. It's wild that we've gotten so far. Yes. That, that it can go from like, from all of that to, I am thinking these words and I'm going to send a tweet and I sent a tweet. Yeah. And it's interesting, right? Because our brains ultimately are organic computers. So finding a way to link the organic computer to the synthetic computer that we've created, it seems super simple, but our brains are so different from the way a normal computer works that it, you know, it's taken a long time to really figure out how to end because we don't really understand our brain signals still super well and how all of those structures in the brain work because they're so complicated. Mm -hmm. It's taken a long time to develop these things. But now that we're into an age of very rapid computer development and yeah. this type of technology is much better understood by a much wider um, range of experts than it was in the, you know, 70s and 80s uh, when it was first in its inception that now we live in a world where these types of breakthroughs are starting. Lots of people are working on them, making progress. Which is also a little scary. And like, 
if you're using it for someone who's like who's had a stroke or who's lost body function, it's a great thing. But if it becomes something that becomes like too ubiquitous, ubiquitous in our society, you end up in the ethical questions of like, should we be doing this to everyone? Where does it get to like, oh, like, okay, I can, from electrical signals you're putting out, I can sense your mood. And now my workplace is going to start doing this. And they're going to know that like, oh yeah, like I'm, I'm putting on a nice face. Like I'm doing my office tact as everyone has to do, but they're going to know that you're displeased. Or something, right? Like, where, where's the line, man? Well, and that's all technology, right? Like, all yeah. new technology is rife with the ability to be abused. And you're right. As soon as we start really diving into people's brains and using brains to do certain things, like, you know, if you have a robotic limb that you're controlling with your brain to computer interface, you know, what happens if someone is able to hack that limb? Yeah. Right? You know, so it's all, even even the same sort of things have happened now that our, our cars are way more connected than cars, ever, right? Yeah. That there's been proof of concepts where people have shown like you know white hat hackers that are trying to show the weaknesses in certain systems have shown that like i can start stop a car dead in its tracks on the highway yeah just if i manage to hack it if i have the right numbers and stuff like that or i can even brute force it so all technology is like that um and this one will really wrinkle your brain oh no throw another pun in there does that mean it's gonna make me smarter because i'll have more folds that's true that's kind of how that works but uh the brain to brain interface so this is some early say. So this is really where like mind control, like Imperiatus curse Harry Potter. I'm going to take control of you and control all your limbs and puppet master you really starts <laughs> to become a bit of a reality and really creepy that they have done experiments where they have linked two people's brains together. They first started with rats and they've actually done it with human beings now. So they've had like two people they're you know, electrodes on the outside of their skull kind of thing, picking up their electrical, their electrical signals from their brains and you're hooked up on the other end and then I will raise my hand and push a button and you will raise your hand and push a button or I can then think about raising my hand and push a button and you will have the physical action of doing it the really really early stages this was a uh so um this was in 2014 with one donor sending a signal and the acceptor doing like a simple motor task and they then, figured out yeah. that they could. They were so excited yeah. that they could. They didn't stop to think if they should. <laughs> and they've even now used this to send information as well. So not even... Because it makes a lot of sense that you could do this, that I could control your motor functions from my brain because our, those parts of our brains should be very fairly similar, right? We're both a human animal and stuff like that. But they've also used it now to send information between participants. So they've done like a Model 20 questions guessing game and they use light simulation at stimulation as the encoded, decoded like sim- signal. So you can essentially sort of like, I can sort of send you my answer to the question via this brain-to-brain interface. And it's very simplified right now where you would just get some sort of like light stimulus. But it can, they're starting to bridge this gap. I'm just frowning so much. This makes me so uncomfortable. Well, that's fair, right? I actually, uh, I actually find this stuff really interesting. It's because... really interesting, but just like the ethical implications of it and just like knowing humans are what we are. I just don't trust humans enough to trust us with any technology like this. Yeah, I find it interesting because there's a classic philosophical question of like, can you actually know if any other person has consciousness? Can you even know if you have consciousness, right? And this idea, because like we were saying, everybody's brain is different. Everybody's brain interprets things in different ways. And you could never actually put yourself in someone else's brain to understand how they think, to know if they have any level of consciousness. It's this classic philosophical conundrum. And I find this kind of stuff, this brain-to-brain interface thing really interesting, even to the point where like I could control your hand if we were hooked up 
with these electrodes and everything was set up that I could get your hand to do a simple motor task. I find that really interesting in terms of the philosophy of that question, because it's starting to really show that like, no, we can almost start to prove that other, you know, even though from a philosophical standpoint, that question does often end with like, well, we know, we assume that other people think because we think kind of thing. It, we're now starting to show that like, yes, there's differences. Obviously all of our brains are different, but there are certain that the way that our brain sends signals can be used to affect any other brain. I just don't trust it. I just don't trust us, man. Well, that's fair. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't trust us either. I wouldn't necessarily sign up for some brain <laughs> control experiment. And these technologies are really far way off. But Hopefully. I think that this is one of those things where, like, I think the, particularly as things, as these things start to help us really understand brain computer interfaces, I think that the, especially in brain computer interfaces, the, the value of that level of technology far outweighs some of the uh i don't know i don't know if i agree with that one (laughs) well i don't know right like i mean but there's lots of other technologies that we have and have abused and have learned to not abuse in the same way i just yeah i don't want anyone in my head but like do you think crispr is a significant scientific breakthrough yes okay well crispr is probably one of the most dangerous biological tools that has ever existed and there are ethical like like scientific ethical laws around not using CRISPR on humans. And it there are laws done. around it, but people do it. There's yeah. a whole generation of CRISPR babies in China. And that makes me very nervous. So this is what, <laughs> this is the point I'm saying, right? Is that, you know, the genie is out of the bottle, right? If the genie has been out of the bottle since the first human being ran, rubbed two sticks together and made fire. How dare they? Right. The, the, the unfortunate part about this is, is that to, to, I, per, my personal belief around a lot of this stuff is like to, to not do these things is almost as irresponsible as doing them because someone is going to. Yeah. And chances are yeah. the people that are choosing not to do it for ethical reasons, right? Are the, the ones who should be doing it because they have the right ethics in place. Exactly. Versus someone is going to do it. The island of Dr. Whatever, Shivago will exist where but he's splicing people with animals. But who's saying that the people who are doing it are the right people? People just get really excited about the science and then they don't think, I don't know. This all just makes me very uncomfortable. Bioethics, everybody. Bioethics. Well, that's totally fair, right? And I I think, like, this is a a completely different discussion, right? The bioethics, ethics and science. It's its own discussion. Maybe we'll do one on it sometime. Exactly. It's a a big topic. (laughs) But it is. And that's why I wanted to do this, like, kind of mind control, mind reading piece. Because it's so, it does. It gives you that kind of icky feeling of, like, oh, I don't know if this is a good thing or not um but it's but it's fascinating from a science perspective perspective for sure well that brings us through habit habit forming habit breaking i guess we didn't really say what our new year's resolutions were no we're gonna tie that in right now okay we talked about all this mind control so we're yeah we set some like tried to mind control ourselves with our resolutions (laughs) okay sure i'm gonna make that segue yeah force force that segue in okay so all right, so my resolutions, I decided to start four mini ones. Okay. Very small, easily trackable ones. So like I said, I've had some issues with like my hands and the strength of my hands. And I have hand exer- like exercises to strengthen up the muscles. Mm-hmm. And I never do them. So I've decided that for five minutes a day. Now, if I did all of the hand exercises that I have from physio, it would take me like 30 minutes a day. But I knew I would never do that. Yeah. I would never accomplish that goal. So I said five minutes a day. So I have that one. And then I decided... Um, I was going to do uh, Kegels every day, which are uh, an activity to strengthen your pelvic floor. Mm-hmm. Ladies uh, or 
Well, and men too. And yeah, everyone should do Kegels. Kegels. That's true. Pelvic yeah. floor is a very um, maligned is not the right word. Um, it's just like you don't think about yeah. it. You where it's kind of taboo, right? Because yep. there is a pleasure aspect to it. If you have stronger Kegels, they say like sex would be better. Um, and there's there's science in that, but we're not going to go into that right now. But it is just also for like your pelvic health and your reproductive organ health yep. and things like this. So doing Kegel. So I was like, I'm going to try to be a responsible human and take care of my body. So I'll do like 20 Kegels a day, which is really small. Two sets of 10. You can get them done really fast. And I set up a, so I have a, a checklist that's on my wall because that's the best way for me to keep track of my mini goals is to see a check mark. And then you get to the end and they're set up in months. So I get to the end of the month and I see check marks every day. And I'm like, oh, I did good this this month and with the kegels in particular because they're so easy to do sometimes i forget about them until i'm look i'm at my list at the end of the day and i'm checking off the other things and i go oh i gotta do those and i can do them right now so i've linked that in with another habit to help me finish that one so i'm doing those i'm doing the hand exercises and then i set up one in a different way or the other two so they are weekly i still have daily checks for them but they're weekly so one is i want to read two hours of like pleasure reading a week because I used to read a lot as a kid and then I completely fell off mostly when I was going through undergrad and stuff because you have so much other reading you're supposed to do and then I totally got out of the habit of doing any reading for my own interest so two hours a week and this one is a little easier because I won't get to it every day but if it gets to Saturday night and I haven't done my reading and we're in a big COVID wave so I don't go anywhere anyway I can do two hours in a night that's an accomplishable one so I've got that one and then the one that the fourth goal was play, what was it, one hour of guitar a week? No, it was two hours of guitar a week. And no, it was one hour. And I was like, I might not accomplish this one. And then, like, a few days into the new year, I got sick. So I just kind of have decided I'm not going to do gu guitar yet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that I have decided this goal is clearly not accomplishable for me at this time. Because I have these other ones that I are a little more important on the totem pole. So I am doing five minutes of hand exercises a day, 20 Kegels a day, and two hours of reading per week. And I have a checklist to help me keep track of them because I get my little dopamine hit by putting a little check mark and then looking at it at the end of the month and being like, I did good, look at me go. And it can be good to have like the daily ones that are very easy tasks and then more of a weekly one so you have a bit more flexibility because life is life and it gets in the way. Very good. There's lots of them. Mine is going to pale in comparison. Um, <laughs> to my super organized way of yeah. doing it, because if I don't make it really organized, I won't do it. I need I need a lot of structure. <laughs> I would have never guessed. Um, <laughs> I, I unfortunately, like, my joke at the beginning of the podcast before we started recording was that I was going to steal Pete Davidson's um, New Year's resolution. If you saw that clip, it's like, he basically just says, like, Every year I make a New Year's resolution and I don't follow through, I break it, and then I'm disappointed in myself. So my New Year's resolution for this year is to not make a New Year's resolution. So I'm already feeling pretty good about myself. Right. I was going to make that joke, but I mean, for the purposes of the podcast, because we talked about it, I'll, I'll dig deep. I'll try to do something. I have lots of like little goals that I want to achieve, little and big goals that I want to achieve for myself this year. And I'll give you some leeway. You were on vacation. So well, I wasn't going to, that was the other, yeah, I wasn't so going to start, start any, I wasn't going to start anything when I was on vacation. And as we've said, New Year's is an art, kind of an arbitrary day anyway. So you can start, just decide the day you're going to start. Well, well, this is, but this is my whole set of beliefs, right? Like, yeah. you know, it's all, to make me do this is really flying into my whole set of <laughs> habit forming beliefs. Just right? for you listeners. And, I know. And I, and I am someone, yeah, like I, 
I view myself as a as a creature of ultimate will, essentially. Not me individually, but humans in general, but also like you know, I think one of my strongest attributes is my willpower. So I don't typically I try not to focus too much on like, oh, you're gonna start this day, you're gonna do this thing. But anyway, I digress. Um yeah, so I don't really have any super like strict ones or structured ones like you did. Uh, I have lots of little things that I want to achieve this year. Not all of them that I'm going to share here, but you know, things like, yeah, I'm going to go back to the gym to like lift weights. Cause for a long time, all I was doing was running. Um, just some things like that, uh, would like to get better back into like more of a yoga practice, some of these things. Um, but I think, I think for the purposes of this podcast, yeah. <laughs> uh, and and really tying everything together, I think my New Year's resolution will be to write the volcano song. Yay! <laughs> that's the best you're gonna get from me. That's that's all you're getting. All right, so you should break it into smaller pieces. Yeah. Make it more accomplishable. Yeah. Well, I think that's one. I think that's a pretty like small individual task that I that is sort of accomplishable. I just gotta start doing it. But you can break but... it into like. I'm going to review the research, right? I'm going to pick the song. I'm going to model it after. I'm going to get You have your out. way of doing things. <laughs> I have my way of doing things. We just talked so long about how small a habit, like how making smaller goals is better than just one big goal. But I think beyond all of that, right, is that you want to, if you know yourself and your brain and how you want or like to do things, is to do things in a way that makes sense for you. Don't do things just because someone else tells you that this is the way that you should do something. Because they're often going to be telling you the way that works for them. I mean, human brains you... do crave structure, but okay. <laughs> Some human brains, apparently. <laughs> Some human brains like to embrace the chaos. Oh, like this guy. The void. <laughs> well, but it's true. And it's like, this is one of those interesting things where I would, you know, I wouldn't have it any other way. I enjoy my chaotic brain. Uh, yes, sometimes it leads me astray, but I... <laughs> I have come to, I've come to terms with what my brain wants to do. But uh I think you're right. Like like yes, a lot of the tricks and the little hacks and things that we talked about today, they do they do help. They're they're tools for a reason. But again, the most important thing is to like do things within a way that makes sense for you. That's so, true. So I'm going to categorically reject your advice. <laughs> Our advice. We were. We just gave all this <laughs> no, advice. your advice to me right now. Oh, we're writing fair. this volcano song. Let me. Let me do things in my own way, Sarah. As Adrian from Yoga with Adrian on YouTube says, a good YouTube channel if you want to start at home. Uh, find what feels good. So exactly. You got to do things at your own pace. You got to do them in your own world. That's the big takeaway here. Yeah. You know, you you got you have to be intrinsically motivated to change yeah. habits or find the right way to bribe yourself. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. If that's what works for you. Yeah. Some if people you need those small rewards right? and some people want a quick cold turkey. Right? Yep. Some and that's what works for people. Some people need a lot of cessation to, to change or, or do different things. So it's all up to the individual. But there you go. But we tried to give you some tips. And I tried my best not to cop out, even though I did sort of anyway. <laughs> it's okay, now I get to ask you about it all the time. Exactly. Right. Now he's so, held accountable. Yeah. Well yeah, there you go. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, I think that, I don't know what we're going to talk about next. It's been obviously a couple of weeks since we really like looked at anything. I know yeah. we talked a little bit about some maybe right to repair. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think we'll maybe give it a week or two and we'll like, just look into yeah. what comes up in the news. Uh, I was told by someone when we were talking about maybe doing something on the Manhattan project, ah, uh, yes. that they were super excited and wanted us to do something on that. So we could potentially do that at some point. I would be down. I'd be down to do that next or, or soon. Yeah. I like that. I like that story. I think there's some good history there. I think yeah. the science We didn't talk about history very much right now. Exactly. So it's a bit of freedom to talk more about yeah. history next time. Perfect. Yeah. Well, uh, I think that takes us to the end of today's episode. Uh, anything you want to promote? 
Yeah, third sock from the sun. I'm uh, getting going on the next series. I know it's been a minute since I've posted a video. It turned out it's really hard to do that and have a full-time job and a life. So <laughs> getting back on that, follow me on Facebook or Instagram. I make sure to always post about our podcast episodes as well. So find me third sock from the sun and you'll always know when our new podcasts are released. Uh, you can also follow us, consider giving us a review or a like or stars or whatever on whatever platform you're listening to our podcast on, because it really does help us hack the algorithm, find new audiences. You can also find us on Twitter at Temporary Expert, just one expert, if you want to reach out specifically more to Davis, and he'll see those. Uh, yeah. But find us, like us, and there's my other there's my other New Year's resolution. About. I will uh, I will make an Instagram for the show. <laughs> there you go, small and achievable, easy to go. do, and then I'll actually post on it because I suck at social media by design. Yeah. but um, I think both of us do. That's yeah, where we're like, oh, that's self promotion. Oh, yeah. hire a social media coordinator. Yeah, um, but yeah. So for all of us here at Temporary Experts. She's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong. And we have been your Temporary, Temporary Experts. Experts. Thanks for listening.